Podcast. What's good, my beautiful hype beasts of all things health and well being? I hope this transmission of goodness finds you well and thriving. My name is Rich Roll, once again in deep communion with my literary minded echo warrior, swim run brobarian, Adam Skolnick, snorkel mask wearing friend of sharks, rider of currents, penner of words. Together once again, and for those who are new, roll on as our view askew edition of the pod, wherein we prognosticate, pontificate, expound, and expatiate on matters both noteworthy and trivial, all buttressed with other bits that have leapt across our transom, underscored by a few wins of the week and piloted to safe harbor with listener questions dropped on our voicemail at 424-235-4626. Adam, how goes you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm apparently unverifiable. <laughs> what does that mean? Instagram. Are you can't. quietly petitioning Instagram to get verified or something? <laughs> Instagram can't and will not verify me. Mm. Therefore, I am questioning my own existence. Yeah. Am, am I me? It's an existential void. Is this all in a simulation? Your self worth is inextricably connected to your verification status. I can verify you, but that's all meaningless. Does your verification of me include a blue check mark or not? The invisible star chamber that is the Instagram verification board has yet to acknowledge your presence. I do not meet their standards. We're just gonna have to do more podcasts, I guess. The only thing I can think of- Is there another Adam Skolnick out there that works at Ben and Jerry's? That's my problem. (laughs) There are no other Adam Skolnicks on Instagram. Therefore, I will never be verified. Maybe if you change your your account name to the real Adam Skolnick. The real. Official Adam Skolnick. I might just go the other way and just go the real. Yeah. It's always funny when somebody on Instagram has the uh, account name official something, right. but then you're like, yeah, but I don't even know who that is. You never heard of you. Are there a bunch of other pretenders to the throne? Story of my life. I don't know who's famous anymore. I don't uh, know. Yeah, the people I think are famous are getting less famous. Yeah. I mentioned your employment with Ben and Jerry's. We should yes. clarify for the record because I think there's some confusion out there. Right. When we joked about that the other day, some people actually believed that you literally got off your shift at Ben and Jerry's and came to do the podcast. No, I did. <laughs> did? I do. Okay. I scoop ice cream at Ben and okay, Jerry's. Okay, now we're clear. Yeah. I just want to make that clear to everybody. <laughs> right. Three days a week, I work a Ben and Jerry's graveyard mm. shift, whatever that is. In between. Uh, posting stories on the New York Times. <laughs> yes, in between. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes there's downtimes in the career right. and you have to pick up an ice cream but scooper. only the vegan flavors. I won't even touch the dairy stuff, which is a problem in my shit. Right, at, is that, you have to talk to HR about that? Like four days a week, I talk to HR and the other three, I work the shift. Okay. <laughs> How? I got my own. I got my own scooper too. I don't. Yeah. I don't use the community scoopers because it's a pandemic. So I bring my own scooper in, mm. and that I've, I actually right. That's never touched. An right. I whittled product. my own scooper. Right. I whittled it. I think uh, there's a whole podcast we could do on just this and this alone. The whittler. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> oh, I will say since we since we last convened and yes. we shared about you out swimming with that photograph of the white shark mm. nearby, that caused quite a reaction in people. Yes. We shared that. Yes. It was interesting. It was what, back out there again on Friday 
And I've been in that area multiple times mm -hmm. since then, but it was back out there with the Malibu artist. He said he was gonna post a video version of that, but I haven't seen that yet. No, I mean, he, I, we were out there and he had, we, he had a shark, we were watching him. Well, before I got there, he was following a shark, I got there. He's following a shark and these swimmers were swimming right to the shark before I even got in the water. And as soon as the sharks heard them coming or felt them coming, it boned out. Mm. And we saw it like disappear off video. The swimmers didn't even know. Cause like I said many times before there are, or I said last time we talked about this, there are swimmers that are there almost every day. Yeah. And it's, you know, especially for triathletes in the Santa Monica area, they're, they're out there. And, um, and so, you know, they just didn't, they didn't see the shark. They didn't know the shark was there. Shark saw them, took off, right. which well, made me feel better about the whole thing. Yeah, on the Malibu artist account, there's yeah. video of sharks swimming directly underneath surfers and they're completely unaware. That's Santa, San Diego. Oh, is that where that, that is? Yeah. yeah, but yes. And, you know, he also was sharing with me that he is like, he found this aggregation point that the scientists, marine biologists didn't even know about at the shark lab down in Long Beach. And now, the long, he went up there to check it out again. And we're talking about an aggregation site, 30, 50 sharks up north of Los Angeles. Um, and they're out there in the night all day. And he, they know, we don't really know what they're doing there, but uh, different size sharks, different ages. Most of them are like under 10 feet, but still it's a mm. big amount of sharks. Um, and a 10 foot fish is still a big fish. Right. And uh, apparently the shark lab was there on a liveaboard and they were pole spearing tags onto the dorsal fin. So it's wow. like piercing, it's like piercing an ear. Yeah. Except they didn't go and ask to be, have their ears pierced. Yeah. So kind the of an shark unheralded lab benefit of, of drone technology. Yeah. The fact that he's been able to identify these sharks that flew under the radar of the scientists who yeah. are studying them. And nobody believed him until he dropped the footage. Mm. You know, like people, cause no one believes just Joe Blow off the street. I'm, right. the, I'm the marine biologist guy, I know, but, right. and they, they didn't know. And so then there was this ABC, KBC did something on the area where I swim. And they said they, there were a dozen sharks in the area. He's never seen a dozen there. He saw six there one day when I was swimming, there was four there on Friday, they're there. Yeah, well, you're looking good, man. Hey, thanks, you posted on Instagram in your your swim run attire, I and did. Uh, you're looking fit, man. Hey, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my sans neoprene swim run attire. <laughs> I know, right? It's Zuma's turning one soon. I yeah. have to balancing your swim run training against raising an infant through the first year is no small thing, dude. I am I am uh, trying to stave off dad bod at all costs, but it wants me. Mm. Gets harder and harder, man. <laughs> I'm but Zuma's first birthday is proof that I do exist. So when does he I'm turn happy. one? Uh, at the end of this month. Wow. Yeah. Congrats, man. That's hey, cool. You. Yeah, it's cool. cool. And he's walking and he's, you know, vocalizing all the time and he's saying some words and he, you know. Becomes like a real human. He's, he's, he's moving from primate stage to homo sapien stage. Yeah. It's very exciting. Very cool. Thanks. How are you, man? You were in Telluride. I was, yeah. I was in Telluride for four or five days. It was a quick trip. The occasion was uh, attending a wedding there, but we have some friends there. So it was great. It was, you know, Telluride is, is aside from the fact that it's just an absolutely magical place. Anybody who's visited there can attest to that. It's really a beautiful 
part of the world in Southwestern Colorado, it's not easy to get there. No. And Julie had gone ahead of time with the boys they drove. I was following with the two younger ones and we were flying. We had a layover in Phoenix before catching a flight to Montrose, which is still an hour and a half drive from Telluride. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we only had a half an hour layover in Phoenix. Our flight left late out of LAX. We missed the connecting flight. Ouch. (laughs) And the next flight to Montrose wasn't until the next day. So when we uh, disembarked in Phoenix, I went to the gate attendant and said, you know, I don't want to wait a whole day. I'm just going to rent a car. But we had checked two bags and I needed to get those bags back. And they sent me down to baggage claim, promised me that they would come through with the rest of the luggage for the flight. They did not. I went to another gate attendant and they said, you're gonna have to wait two to three hours to get your bags. Sure enough, it did take three hours. And this is because, you know, the airlines are in disarray right now. They're laying people off, they're understaffed, they're canceling flights all over the place. They're laying so, people off and are understaffed? Yeah, it's, it's because the economics of it are all upside down right now, okay. I, I guess. So anyway, we left our house at like 6 a.m., but we didn't leave the Phoenix airport until like 5 p.m and ended up getting a pickup truck, drove to Flagstaff, spent the night, drove into Telluride the next day. So it took a full two days to get there, um, which was not great. I mean, I love road trips, my younger kids, not so much, although it ended up being, <laughs> being fun. That's they, they were less enthusiastic about the whole thing. Um, but you drive through some, you know, when, once you get north of Flagstaff, you're in yeah. all this native country and it's quite spectacular and beautiful. Yeah. You go through four corners. Yeah up into Colorado and uh, it's magical. And when you get to Telluride, it's like a real life Whoville. You know, I went on some amazing runs. There's this gondola that takes you from the old, you know, old Telluride downtown up in the mountain village. That's like free public transportation. It's really spectacular. It's like rented a bike. Three, three sides of mountains, right? It's, it's like crazy. Up, yeah, yeah, you're like in this like slot cauldron, yeah. you know, and there's just waterfalls everywhere mm-hmm. and it's really magical. The wedding was great. It was attended by our mutual friend, Ted McDonald. Teddy Mac. Just might be dropping by later today. Ooh, Teddy Mac to spoil it. Um, more about Ted a little bit later, uh, but yeah, it was great. My wife is still there. The boys stayed longer too. They just got back last night. Um, it was really, it was really a cool experience. But there was some interesting things that happened when I was there. Not the least of which was there was a death on the Via Ferrata. Do you know what the Via Ferrata is? I do not. So Via Ferrata is a term. I don't know the exact translation, but it's a general term for. Uh, climbs where there are cables kind of okay. um, pinned into the side yep. of uh, you know a raw like rock face. Like Half Dome has. Sort of, and, and it allows you to kind of clip in and go, go laterally, like horizontally along the rock face. And you're oh, like thousands of feet, yeah, on the face. So you're like thousands of feet up, but you're clipped in and it's quite a tourist attraction in Telluride, this particular Via Ferrata. And every time I go, people are like, you gotta do the Via Ferrata, you gotta do it. It's like, I'm being bullied into doing the Via Ferrata. I'm terrified of heights. I'm always like, I'm good. I'm not doing the Via Ferrata. Stop with the the Via Ferrata. It (laughs) sounds like, you know what? It sounds like- I feel like I'll be trapped, you know, clipped in on this rock face, looking thousands of feet down, terrified and unable to like escape or get out of it. It sounds like a mafia. probably why I should do it. Yeah, like in a mafia 
mafia assassination yeah. plot. <laughs> anyway, hey, Rich, right. come with me to the Via Ferrata, huh? Yeah. And don't, you don't need anything. Don't worry about don't it. Bring you don't, you know, don't bring anything. They say you need to clip in. You, you don't, don't have need to worry it. <laughs> You don't need <laughs> okay. anything, trust me. Yeah, we laugh and we jest, but um, the, the, there are tours, like proper tours where a guide will take you across and it's all safe and you're always clipped in and all of this. But apparently two women went up on it while we were in town um, without a guide doing it on their own. And a woman apparently unclipped for reasons un, unbeknownst to anybody and fell to her death, like Jeez. down, I think like a thousand feet. Like So fell. she's walking like face down on this thing or whatever. Well, you're just kind of going, you know, from, you're just going, you're like facing the wall and you're, you're, you're on moving a laterally ledge. on a, yeah, on okay. a ledge and you have two clips. So you would, un, you unclip one to move and you always have one right. clipped in. Right. So I don't know why this person would have been completely unclipped, but apparently that's what happened. And she, she, that. she perished. Um, I had dinner with David Holbrook, who's the founder of a thing called Original Thinkers, which is sort of a Aspen Ideas, Nantucket project okay. sort of festival that I've spoken at at the past. It's a really cool event. In, in Telluride? Um, in Telluride, yeah. He lives there, he's a filmmaker the son, interest, interestingly, of, of Richard Holbrook. Okay. And he's a filmmaker. He made a documentary about his father called The Diplomat that you can find on HBO. Super interesting guy who uh, was living in New York City and, and relocated his family to Telluride in, in like 2013. And his son, who's 19, leads, um, he's one of the people that takes groups up on the, the Via Ferrata. He's like a, a really accomplished climber, but he also, participates in in search and rescue. Mm. So he was part of the search and rescue team that had to recover this woman's body. Ouch. And we saw him, he was quite shaken up by that. Yeah. So yeah, man, that stuff's for real. Um, but other than that, you know, Telluride is just, it's unbelievable. Had a, had a great time. And I think what I wanted to share about that experience is getting out of LA and kind of putting some distance between me and and and, and my work, et cetera. You know, it's one of those experiences that allows you to kind of reflect on, you know, what you're doing with your life, how you're doing it, things that you want to change. I did a bit of a, a life review and and had a bit of a epiphany around the systems that we have here at the podcast, and and what we can change, what we should change, what we should hold on to, what we should let go of, and it really connected me to this profound. Um, uh, kind of tendency towards perfectionism that I have and balancing that against efficiency. Because I think, you know, I have this proclivity towards being a perfectionist, you know, this idea that I'm the only one who can do this and I have to do it and it mm. has to be this particular way. And if it's not, it's a failure. And I think I've, I've held on to that because, or I've created a narrative around that, that that has fueled part of my success but at the behest of kind of hamstringing us in terms of like how we grow and how we kind of expand and, um, and the many ways in which I think it continues to hold me back and, and the show back and reflecting on how I could get into a headspace of, of letting go of those, some of those things so that we can work a little bit more loosely and, and, and more efficiently with you know, how we do things. Cause I think there's, there's positives and pitfalls of perfectionism based on my experience. Like mm -hmm. I, it, 
for me, it's like I it's allowed me to set a very high standard and strive to adhere to that. But ultimately I end up becoming the bottleneck for every decision. And now we're running this operation where there's a lot of people involved. We have a brand new hire, Dan Drake is here. Shout out to Dan. Dan Drake. His first day. Um, and so that involves managing people, that involves empowering people, that involves a decision tree where lots of decisions are getting made. And we have a system right now where I end up like having to yay or nay a lot of decisions that I really shouldn't be in a position to do. Mm. Um, and I think like it's, it's, it's part and parcel of what leads to burnout and exhaustion. Like when I was in Telluride, I still had to get a show up and then the night that I was flying back, there was a show going up and it, I couldn't just like take a break because mm. the post-production cycle, and I think a lot of people don't realize this is really protracted with this show. Like I've got um, to get this, you know, we get this blog post up and we have all these photographs and how do we create, it's like publishing a magazine for mm. every episode because the web piece of the show is kind of an aesthetic cornerstone to the whole thing and yet, the truth is, I don't know if anybody who listens to this show goes to the blog post and the web page to listen to it or to watch it. It right. looks great, but we're spending so much time getting that up on its feet when truly it, it, it it's not really that related to moving the needle in terms but of- But you've always had that, like when I was a guest on the show years ago, I was struck by how everything, like your the look is all very cool and stylized and, and unique. And that has always been part of your, your package. And I think it has set it apart. It must have attracted yeah. visitors. Having that aesthetic has always been part sure. of what you're doing. And that's, that's what keeps me wedded to it yeah. at the same time. Yeah. However, like when I listen to a podcast, I never go to the website. No. I think the, the percentage of people that go and visit that page is probably really small. And when you balance that against the number of hours and all the toil that goes into creating that, the question then becomes, is that worth it? Right. Especially when we're putting out a book every year, excuse me, where people can, have that experience in book form versus trying to make that happen every single week. However, in the process of creating those pages, we're doing a lot of the legwork for stuff that ends for up social in the book. stuff, right? So, and, and book, yeah. But, but I want to work towards a, a a place where as soon as we're done doing the podcast, I can walk away and I don't have to worry about it. Which is the way most people do it, yeah, right? Yeah. Other people get it up on its feet. You trust them, it's good, you move on to the next thing. And if I could free up that time, would it not be better to add another show or two every month? Would that be more impactful or important than creating this pristine web page yeah. for posterity? I don't know. So that's just one of the things that 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 you know has been on my mind and I'm not sure how to solve that. Um, you know, and as somebody who's always been kind of a solo operator. You know, I struggle with growth and the responsibility that that comes with that, and because I think managing people and figuring out systems really doesn't uh, meet my strengths or mm. nor my past experience. But this is what growth is, right? Yeah. So anyway, the so other thing I will share, and we'll put the Telluride trip to rest, is on the way back, the travel saga continued <laughs> <laughs> because. <laughs> We made our connecting flight in Phoenix, but in the Phoenix airport, there was a guy who was kind of 
creating a little bit of drama. Oh yeah. And I knew that if he got on our plane, there was probably gonna be a problem. Like he was sort of flagrantly taking his mask off and he was hitting his vape pen. And I was in like- the, In the lounge. In, in, in the airport terminal, right, yeah, right? right. Because he was trying to attract attention. Right. Like his goal was to be the center of attention. Not only does he get on our plane, he ends up sitting right behind me. <laughs> And the volume just turned up to 11 on this guy trying to attract attention to himself. And he was gonna do it through charm or jokes or the volume of his voice right. or if need be conflict, all of which ensued oh, no. to the point where finally a gaggle of flight attendants descended upon him, demanded his ID and told him that he was banned from American Airlines. And when we landed, he got escorted off the flight and when we we when we got off the plane, he was sitting with a couple cops, and this is a weird thing as That's somebody who's been driving, you know, a, a patron of commercial aviation for a very long time. I've never seen anything like that no. happen. But if you peruse social media, it would appear that this is happening all the time. It's People one of those common things that you never see, right? Their minds, yeah. yeah. Like that video. Did you see the video of the guy who got duct taped to his seat? Mm after he was trying to I fight. Did. I don't know the circumstances I around did see that, that. But you know, people are on edge, man. People are angry and they are. it seems that commercial aviation is this Petri dish for um, acting out in a way that seems new. New, the, the commercial aviation is a capsule for acting out. It's like the new subway. It used to be Maybe. like the New York subway was the place that you saw the crazies every once in a while. And now it's, now it's taking to the skies. Or it's almost like a pulpit for people to, you know, act out in a very particular way, knowing that they're going to be filmed. It's a stage. I don't know. The whole it world's is. a stage. It's it's the Shakespearean comeuppance of uh, of <laughs> yeah. aviation, commercial Somebody aviation, should put a theatrical production on. <laughs> of, you know, shit that goes down on airplanes. You know what? I wish he had just gotten up badly. and said, listen, you can ban me if you want, but I am doing the, the final monologue in Macbeth. Well, the interesting thing is that when, when he was told that he was being banned from yes. American Airlines, it was, he was gleeful. It was almost like his goal <laughs> was achieved. You know, like, and I'm like, that's such a strange, like he actually wanted that to happen. Yes. So what is going on with the individual who is so in need of that kind of attention, no matter the circumstances? Um, you know, I, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I, I will answer that no, question. You are a Ben and Jerry's employee <laughs> in good standing is what you are. I think that that's what you need. You need to add another show. It's just me at Ben and Jerry's, just you know, <laughs> scooping ice cream right. and talking with my coworkers. That sounds like a new TikTok channel for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, before we move on, you are on TikTok now, sir. I am. The, How do you like the, it? How, how's, the, uh, how's the water? Well, in first there? of all, first of all, the account Rich Roll was taken by somebody who's never posted a TikTok. <laughs> so I am. I my account is at I am Rich Roll. Oh, and I like it. Our boy AJ here in the house has been creating TikToks for that channel, taking clips from the podcast. But I think the yeah, so I am there and uh, and it's it's growing. People are enjoying, like taking some of the best of the show and putting little- Dude, we need a dance number. Slivers up there. But yeah, I, I haven't we done a, a TikTok number. in the true 
kind of spirit of TikTok, like performing number. for the camera. But my behind the scenes mentor on all things TikTok is is Joanne Molinaro, the the Korean vegan. I was She's just my consult. So I just haven't like right now, AJ's handling it. I haven't made a TikTok myself. I should say that. Joanne, we're gonna need uh, three of your best choreographers over here <laughs> yes. and then we'll do a roll on dance. The lighting, the can <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. Like we need <laughs> something. I don't know what that's gonna be yet. Something has to but happen. Much to my children's chagrin, I am on TikTok. You're saying Davey, uh, photographer Davey Greenberg. Yeah, Davey is Greenberg, on, on he's a beast TikTok. on TikTok, sharing all of his training in the lead up to his first marathon. Davey's killing it. He did his longest run to date, 10 miles at a, an 8.01 pace. Is that Dang, correct, Davey? Son. Yeah, man. He's gonna be ready to go come LA marathon time. All right, let's pivot. Let's do it. Enduro Corner. I love Enduro Corner. Yes. What do we got this week? We got high peaks and cold water. First up, we have to give uh, kudos to Robbie Ballinger. Mm. We're kind of checking in on him every week in the spirit in which we you know, checked in on the Iron Cowboy. He is closing in on his Colorado Crush update. Uh, for those that are, are new, he's in the midst of this summer long quest to conquer the Leadville Marathon, which he did. Then he ran the Colorado Trail, which is 500 miles. Then he <laughs> did the Silver Rush 50, which was also in Leadville. And he's almost completed summiting all 58 Colorado peaks over 14,000 feet. I think he's on 56 today. As of yesterday, he had done 55. And then he's gonna culminate this whole thing with the Leadville 100 on August 21. But all seems to be going to plan. There was one peak that he was very close to summiting and then had something going on with his ears or his eyesight. Oh, really? He was only like hundreds of feet away from the summit and he backed down and went back down according to what he shared on Instagram. So I don't know if he went back up that peak or not. I'm a little unclear on that but he appears to be healthy and enervated and, and excited. Enervated? So, enervated. Meaning yeah. low energy. Oh, enervated means low energy? Energy, enervated I think means drained of all oh, of it does? energy. I've been using that word wrong. As somebody who prides himself on, on vocabulary. <laughs> your vocab is one of your strengths. <laughs> yeah, plead guilty to misusing that word then. Energized, I should say. <laughs> I didn't mean to enervate And uh, interestingly, it's being chronicled by uh, Reese Robinson who mm. had a tenure working with us on the podcast. Oh yeah. Making videos and stuff. Oh. So shout out to Reese as well. So we'll keep you posted on that. In a similar uh, sort of endeavor, Scott Jurek made an attempt at an FKT, his second FKT attempt on the Appalachian Trail. Um, he set the record going south to north a couple of years ago, mm. um, completing that trail in 46 days, six hours and seven minutes. This time he was going north to south. It's a 2,193 mile trail. His goal is to do it in 40 days or under. Um, the problem with starting in the north is there's these crazy elevation changes. There's not a lot of opportunity to kind of acclimate to mm. that level of, of rigor. And he ended up pulling out after a week with a, with a torn quad muscle, which is kind of a bummer. Bummer. Yeah. Um, so hopefully he'll heal up and, and, and make another attempt on that. Um, the, the FKT for going north to south is set, is held by Carl Metzler who did it in 45 days, 22 hours, 38 minutes. He did that in 2016. And Scott's 
FKT going south to north um, was bested by Carol Saab. I think mm. that's how you say his name, Sabi. Karel Saab, I think is how you say it. Okay. Um, who did it in 41 days, seven hours and 39 minutes. So he beat Scott's record by almost five days. Hmm. So Scott had really shouldered uh, a pretty um, ambitious goal with trying to do this in 40 days or under, and hopefully he'll heal up and get after it again. Let's catch up. Carl Metzler, Carl, that's the name that's in the Goggins book. He was the he won the Hurt 100 when David was trying oh, to qualify did. for the first uh-huh. Badwater that he, he mm-hmm. did. And he remembered David, Yeah, I mean, he's a legend. Yeah, running. David remembered him coming down. He's just never seen a better athlete right. to that point in his life, seeing Carl run right. on these crazy s- slick trails. And I mean, Scott is an absolute beast. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Carl has the North to South at 45 days, I mean, that's wild. They're both, I mean, they're both, yeah. These mm. are two of the legends of the sport, unbelievable. Sure. No doubt. Yeah. Um, all right, well, moving from high peaks to, to cold water, we're yes. gonna spend a little time on cold water right now. Is there, is there an update on Lewis Pugh and his code red Arctic swim? <laughs> His speedo diplomacy. Speedo diplomacy is is good to go. He got approval for his uh, charter flight from Reykjavik to um, Ilulusat, mm-hmm. um, but there were only seven seats that he was allowed to have, and uh, apparently Ridley Scott is sending a film crew. Wow! So uh, there is going to be a cool. documentary at the other end of this, um, and so there was no spot for your humble reporter. No, no, um, plus, seat, no seat for Adam Skolnick. Adam Skolnick in the, in the Ridley well, the, Scott universe. The unverified are not invited, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, um, his swim moved. So originally I was gonna do this story and it was gonna be around now that mm-hmm. I was gonna be out there because um, he was planning it for like the, the window is opening from like the ninth or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know when we were planning this, commercial flights were available, everything was open. It would have yeah. been super easy to get there. But now the swim is taking place on the 25th. So the only way I could do it is either only get there for the first couple of days of the swim because it's a 10 kilometer swim, but he's only gonna do um, about a, a kilometer to a kilometer and a half every day. Right. Because the body, because it's the coldest ocean in the world, basically. It's literally right where the glacier is melting into all the, the ice melt that we're hearing about is happening where he's swimming. Right. And so he is going to be, you know, in rough kind of mush ice or whatever it's called that like where the glacier, there's gonna be times where he's actually in slush right. possibly, wow. possibly he doesn't wanna be cause it's rough and, and, and not so good on the body, but he, he's only doing about 20 to 30 minutes in that water every day. And anyway, long story short, he, the swim starts on the 25th of August. Uh, Zuma's birthday is the 29th of August. I'm not missing. First, I've missed a lot of stuff in my life. I'm not missing my son's first birthday. So I did try to get there after that. I looked into getting out on the 30th and trying to get there for the end of his swim. Um, and that, you know, commercial flights are just impossible to come by. There was mm-hmm. a seat on the 23rd, but again, that wouldn't work for me. So uh, one of your listeners reached out and tried to get me through the, like all the scientists and how they get there sometimes on a national guard plane that US provides all these different interesting ways. Um, and they've been like a, a, a listener of yours who's Danish, but lives in Norway has been like calling Air Greenland for me. Mm. I mean, the, the, the community has come to try to get me there, but it's just not gonna happen. So 
unfortunately, I won't be there, but I'll be paying close attention. Uh, you know, he it really is kind of the the um, eloquent Al Gore in speedos that right. we need right now, and he's kind of um, different than Greta. Greta's you know leads with with her fire, and Lewis is is really. He's also very motivated and passionate, as passionate and as alarm. He's alarmed, and he's been uh, doing this for a long time. Yeah, he's exactly where she is in terms of knowledge of the stuff and how alarming it is. But he's just more. He's just got a polished, more of a diplomat's right. kind of tone. Well, how, I mean, how old is he now? He's probably like so I think 58 he's fifty or something like that. Oh, yeah, maybe he's a little older. I think, I think he's, he's a little older 52, than fifty-two, fifty. I think he mm. might be your age, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. For those that don't know, this swim, as you mentioned, uh, 10 kilometer swim yep. at the mouth of the Alulasat Ice Fjord, yep. which is basically in Greenland, the world's fastest moving glacier. It moves at something like three meters a day, near freezing waters, wind chill. It's crazy mm. what he's attempting to do. And he's been sharing on, on social media, his training swims, cause he's in Iceland right yeah. now. And he was swimming in some river the other day and there was a drone shot from above that was pretty spectacular. It's amazing what he does. It's, it's, it's kind of cool to like merge adventure with a mission like this. And, mm. and um, you know, I, I would really want you to, I've been wanting to write about him for years, just didn't happen this time, but you know, that's the way it goes. Yeah. Pivoting to Antonio Arguelles. So uh, Antonio Arguelles uh, was attempting someone I know who I covered in 2017 when he did the North Channel, the last of the Ocean Seven, mm -hmm. and he became the oldest at age 58 to ever uh, accomplish the Ocean Seven. He was the seventh to ever do it. Do you know what the, the all, what all seven of them are? Yes, let's rattle them off: uh, Catalina, mm -hmm. English Channel, um, Gibraltar, Cooks. Strait, mm -hmm. um, Japan, uh, it's at Sugaro Strait in Japan, uh, the Molokai to Oahu, right, and and uh, the North Channel. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. In 2017, he swam from Northern Ireland to Scotland. So that was that's the North Channel, and that's so that's that the is. coldest okay. one. That's like 55 that degrees. The one that brutal. it's really hard. That's the one Kim Chambers came out of and was like basically had mm -hmm. to be hospitalized immediately after. It's 35 kilometers too. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and but you know, I Kim Chambers actually introduced me to Antonio. Uh, they they did a cross border swim from San Diego to the other side of Tijuana oh, in the, Tijuana. Yeah, to yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Like I remember a, her talking about that right after Trump was elected. So I did that story and then stayed in touch with Antonio. And then I reached out to him. He happened to be in North in Ireland preparing to do the North Channel, and uh, and so then we did that story and he made it. And you know, every, I actually also ghost wrote something I haven't really spoken publicly about too often. I ghost wrote his memoir, The Forever Swim. Um, he approached me around the same time that Goggins did, and and so I, I finished the Goggins book and then finished his. Um, I, and he, you didn't, I didn't even know this until this morning. Well, he, it was published on a Spanish language, so he, I got trans, we translated mm -hmm. it, and then now it's it's available in English, I think, on Amazon, and uh, also uh, the audiobook's available. Though he didn't narrate, I wish he did. He's a really interesting guy. He was inspired by the 1968 Olympics, the 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 first Mexican to win a swimming medal in the 1968, and he immediately signed up for a swim to get into swimming at his local YMCA. And then um, over the years, he and his brothers all got into it and they sold, like there was no good. At that time, it was hard to get uh, licensed to, to import goods from 
uh, other countries into the into Mexico. It was a very controlled economy. It wasn't a, it wasn't an open economy, and so they ended up selling on the black market at these swim races, speedo, whatever they could get, good mm -hmm. goggles, decent swimsuits. He ended up. Uh, connecting with the person who had the Speedo license in the United States in North America and started to get the good stuff. And over time, through his high school career, he was going to try to become an Olympic Olympian at age 17. He narrowly missed making the team at age 17, but ended up at Stanford uh, through, his, through his connections uh, in, in the Speedo world. He finished high school in the Bay Area and was involved in, in the, the swim clubs up there, one of the mm -hmm. best swimmers up there. <clears throat> ended up in Stanford, <clears throat> but he, um, you know, he just wasn't, he wasn't elite enough to, to, to really make a splash. And so he, after a year he got out of, he, he quit the team and focused on his academics and ends up being uh, in high, high up in government in Mexico. And so his book is about his swims, but it's also about um, kind of the modern history of Mexico, which is really interesting wow. and, and, and his life story. So yeah, um, I didn't know anything about him yeah. and he's old enough. He's, I think he's like eight years, seven or eight years older than me yep. that we didn't overlap at Stanford. And I read that when, he, when asked about why didn't you swim at Stanford, he said it wasn't the right fit. And that's usually code for like, <laughs> I don't get along with Skip Kenny. Like yes. anybody who is, you know, has some connection to the Stanford swimming universe has heard some version of that story. Because Skip is a, you know, he's a, uh, he's a, he could be a challenging character right. for certain people. So I immediately assumed that, but that was not actually the case. No, so he, um, he, he got along fine with Skip. Um, what he didn't like was basically his role on the team was he was breaking water for the best women, mm. and so like he just didn't like being in that position of right. not being good enough, and um, he felt like he just wasn't right. And so he backed off and he doubled down on his business. He ends up like. Getting the getting the uh, um, the contract to to supply all the swim gear to the Pan Am Games while he's still right. in college, <laughs> becomes this Wheeler dealer, yeah, yeah, entrepreneur, yeah. and he still is. Um, but he is uh, so anyway. He was attempting to do the double. He did the Catalina, the English Channel double. He did the Catalina double in 2019. Became the oldest to ever do it. He's 62 now, and his goal was to then do the English double. And he it was a really glassy day, flat day. And he got to France in 13 hours or so, was doing great, came back, got within two miles of Dover. And um, he'd been vomiting all day and he hadn't been feeling well in his stomach and he started hallucinating, which sometimes happens in these 24 hour swims. Um, he thought it was because of the hypothermia, although it was only like, 62 degree water, which is, you know, it's not cold, not cold. It's cold if you're gonna be in it for 24 yeah. hours, but it's not cold for him. Um, but he just wasn't feeling it and he got a complicated current. And so with two miles to go, they made the decision that it was getting dangerous. And also, you know, the boat, apparently the boat was breaking down. And so he was drifting away from the boat. He didn't realize the boat was breaking down. So it was getting dangerous. So he came out. And then he got to Dover and you know, the plan was for him, he and his wife, Lucia, to then go to Paris and enjoy a vacation. He always kind of does that after one of these swims. And he, he, the stomach just wasn't getting any better. And it got to the point where he couldn't even stand up and he was rushed to the emergency room. And it turns out he had gallstones mm. while doing this. Oh my God. And one of, the gall, one of the stones got in the canal between I guess the gallbladder and the stomach right, maybe. The duct. In the duct. And so it got into that duct and it was lodged there. 
and he ended up needing a procedure, but like, so he had gallstones and well, still almost made this. it. Wow. I mean, he's wow. an amazing That's athlete. wild. Is he gonna yeah. make another attempt, you yes, think? Yes, yes, definitely. Well, speaking of, of, of cold water swims not going to plan, our boy, Chris Hout, uh, my coach, Coach's Corner mainstay, uh, made a, an attempt last week to uh, swim across Lake Tahoe, Trans Tahoe. It's a 21.8 mile swim in very cold water. Uh, I don't know many of the details, but on Instagram, one of his crew members was sort of sharing clips. It began in the dark, I think maybe at something like two, two or three in the morning or something like that. Mm. And after a few hours of swimming, Chris ended up with, with hypothermia um, and, and pulling out of it. And all I can tell you about that is Chris is one of the, one of the uh, hardest men I've ever met. So anything that fells Chris had to be brutal beyond. So I had some texts with him this morning. Apparently his, um, his kids were ill uh, mm. in the days leading up to this. And then he got quite sick in the day or two, like 48 to 72 hours after this. So he wasn't tip top, I think right. is basically what happened. So but that's cold water. He may be making another attempt in, in September. I don't know. Um, but unfortunately that one didn't go to plan. And, you know, Chris is, you know, he's got that Nordic blood, mm. um, but that cold water, you know, unlike, unlike Antonio, I mean, Chris is very lean. You right. know, he didn't put a lot of these open water, cold water swimmers, they put on all this heft they look all paunchy, they're fit. They just need that subcutaneous fat to keep them warm. Yeah. Chris, Chris Nunn got none of that. Antonio yeah. has what he calls bioprene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well right? earned. Bioprene, well that's good. Um, Chris was putting in monster swim sessions though to get ready for this. So my heart's a little bit broken. And all I gotta to say that. is, I don't know how these guys do it. I can't stand cold water. Uh, it's really hard for me. And on the subject of cold water, before we take yes. a break here, I gotta share my new um, streaming obsession, which oh, is no. this show called The North Water. Have you checked I, it out yet? I, I, I'm trying to get April into it. We watched the trailer and she looked at him and she goes, Colin Farrell's in this? Yes. <laughs> so this is a new mini series that's yeah. streaming on AMC Plus. You can get it on Amazon Prime. Um, I'm only two episodes into, I guess it's five episodes total. Um, and it's a show that's set in the 1850s in England um, about whaling, mm. set on a whaling ship. It does star, star Colin Farrell as just, I mean, this guy explodes off the screen. Mm. He's like a barrel chested, homicidal, alcoholic, completely feral, master harpoonist oh. called Henry Dax. And he's just a fucking savage in the show. It's unbelievable. Uh, and then Jack O'Connell, uh, who plays this um, surgeon on the whaling ship who's suffering from PTSD uh, mm. from his experience um, being deployed to the colonial war in India and he's addicted to laudanum and he's kind of like the ballast. I feel like um, in every 19th century uh, drama, someone's got laudanum. Someone's, yeah, someone's some, taking some laudanum. Kind of, yeah, he's <laughs> way down the rabbit hole on laudanum. <laughs> there was laudanum in the, in the Berlin thing, right? Uh, Babylon, oh, Berlin. Babylon Berlin. Babylon yeah. Berlin, I think, yeah. And Deadwood has laudanum. 
Oh, Deadwood does yeah, too. Yeah. Well, and then in um, in the Nick, it's it's like uh, opium and and heroin oh, okay. and morphine. So they moved on from laudanum yeah. in the Nick. <laughs> it seems to be part of the time. Well, we, <laughs> look, man, nobody knew better, right? Why not? There's a scene where he goes into the pharmacy and he's trying to finagle extra laudanum, you know, with the pharmacist before he gets on the whaling ship. So he has a, a supply that's going to last him for the tenure of this adventure. Yeah. But this show is like, just do you have unreal? Do you have any extra laudanum? You already asked me that. I don't Did know. I though? Must be pretty good. I mean, he <laughs> nods out like it's heroin. I, I don't know exactly what laudanum is, but it's like morphine. I think right? it's good liquid stuff. morphine or something. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I gotta say. Colin Farrell, I just think it's fascinating. He's making, it's an extraordinary performance by him. He layers this murderous nature that he has with a certain kind of gentility. Mm. And and the more I see him in recent things, the more I'm becoming increasingly convinced that he he truly is one of the all time greats. He's making super interesting career choices. Yes. Starting with The Lobster, then he did True Detective. Did you see the gentleman? I did not the see coach? the gentleman or He's the coach. On, he is on fire in that movie. Uh, you know, my favorite is In Bruges. I think in that's Bruges a is masterwork. Incredible. It is. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Um, you can't take your eyes off of him, and it's just it's like, I mean, they get on this whaling ship. I'm not going to spoil too much of it, but they start venturing north to Greenland, yeah. um, past Cape Farewell, and into the Baffin Bay. Maybe you could have hitched a ride on this whaling ship to get up there to see <laughs> Louis Pugh. It doesn't look like a good time, but there's plen- plenty of laudanum. Lou, to it's make me, the, I'm the here. Time, the time pass. And they kind of decamp onto these ice flows and Colin Farrell gets off and he's walking around on the ice, just yeah. clubbing seals. Yeah, it's as just, you do. It's unbelievable. But, it's so vicious yeah. and harsh and visceral and disturbing. It's sort of like, you know, Apocalypse Now meets Joseph Conrad and, you know, with Warner Herzog vibes, but you had or a better- Or The Revenant meets yes. Master and Commander. Yes, The Revenant meets Master and Commander might be the best. But which, which belies, which, which, which you kind of, there's a question there is like, who is going to watch this? Like, I, 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 I liked it. You I like it. it. Yeah. But like, and it, like, it looks like a massive production. Like, it is. like, yeah. like how many, how much money I mean, got they have put a into legit that? Like is that a, a legit vintage whaling ship that they're literally on? Like is that they're like filming an on this million boat. dollar. I think production? they filmed they filmed in the fjords around Norway. Okay, I, I'm pretty sure they, is they where got they, the, filmed they got it. the cheap fjords, but they spared no expense on this thing. Oh. It's super interesting. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and, and so you love it. So this is great. I'm yeah. I'm 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 going to watch this thing. We have a, I, we have a cold water theme running through this show today. We're ice cold, baby. Mm-hmm. We haven't even gotten to the to the Next cold water subject. Yes. Which is kind of hot. That's true. Yes. Um, before we take a break, I, I should say also on the subject of, of things that I'm watching that I'm enjoying, I just finished The White Lotus last night, which is amazing. Have you been watching that? No, I've, I've, I've opted out of The White Lotus so far. Oh, yeah, you got to check it out. Really? Mike White is a genius. What did he I do last? It. What was his last thing? Enlightenment. He did that show, Enlightenment. Okay. He used to have a production shingle with Jack Black called yep. Black and White. Um, he's great. He just has this incredible ability to kind of capture um, the zeitgeist and create these characters that are archetypes that are all identifiable. Like each person in this show, you're like, I know somebody like that. Right. 
It's amazing. I, I'm interested in it, you know, being a, a longtime travel writer and seeing like some of these five-star properties and, and just kind of, so that aspect is interesting. And, well, he and, definitely mines the territory of colonialism and, yeah. and kind of, you know, like the idea, you know, it's sort of almost like Westworld. Like they right. go to this place and they, they kind of artificially craft this Hawaiian experience within the enclave or within, you know, behind the walls of a very, you know, fancy right. resort. And they filmed the whole thing at the Four Seasons in Maui during the pandemic. Oh. It was closed down, they took it over and were able to execute like eight episodes of this show when everything was shut down. In short go. shrift, like it looks like it all came together and was, and he wrote every episode. I mean, the guy is brilliant. Damn you, Rich Roll! I'm in a reading phase. So I'm in a reading you know, phase. These are both very literary shows, though. <laughs> okay, so you can you can use that excuse. Um, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with more interesting thoughts. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. 
Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. And we're back. Should we share a few parting thoughts on the Olympiad? Let's do it. Where do you wanna start? Um, I think, uh, you know, for me, the the final event, which is the marathon, um, Kipchoge winning that, running away from the field with eight miles to go and basically sweltering, you know, 90 to 98 degree yeah. with 90% humidity type conditions. And the way he finished it was just spectacular. And then friend of the pod, Knox Robinson wrote um, something for the Tracksmith newsletter that I loved. Uh, you know, I always love reading his stuff. He's such a good writer. He's amazing. I, I, just, I just want him to write more, you know, mm-hmm. that's it. But uh, he had these quotes this is from when he was at a training camp because he wrote a profile on Kipchoge for GQ, but this, this, this kind of were outtakes from a training camp when he visited there in the Rift Valley in, in 2019, I think it was. Correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was 2019. And he had this great quote in his story. Uh, this is Kipchoge talking. In our place here, we actually don't believe in success. We believe in great preparation, which will be translated to success. We don't wanna actually put success in front of our minds. If we do, we are not doing the job. We want to do the job first and then success is realized. And it's, like- It's so profound. It's like, but like that's for everything, put. right? Right, like, like yeah, everything in life. The work I do, I often think of results first and then you have to stop yourself, but like, like it doesn't matter, like that is so immaterial of the process of writing, mm-hmm. some, of creating something great. You know, like the, the creation of something great is in the day-to-day process. Like Davey's experiencing now with his training and all of that. It's like that, like you can't worry about what's gonna happen in the future. No. Process and, over results, yeah, journey yeah. over destination. Yeah. And it's what you learn along the way that kind of girds you for whatever success you, like either you succeed or you fail and you learn something along the way. Yeah, it's like you leave it out on the floor and and you know live with it because mm-hmm. you've done everything you can do. Right, but yeah. detaching from that kind of goal-oriented mindset and just falling in love with the grind mm. is the journey. And you know, I remember from when Knox was on the podcast and talking about, you know, he's, I think he's made a number of trips to that part of the world and spent quite a bit of time with not just Kipchoge, but like a lot of those elite marathoners experiencing how they live their lives day in, day out. And it's very simple. 
Mm. You know, we get caught up in the gadgets and the metrics and the goals and this and that. And they're just literally going out, you know, and like just the basics. The habits. You know, building sleep, habits. eat, train, run, have fun. So apparently the other thing that I kind of was struck with my last thought on the Olympics were these two mothers that dominated. And uh, one is Faith Kipyogon, also Kenyan, trains with Kipchoge or start, started to in the last couple of years. She won the 1500 meter race uh, five years ago and she was defending her gold medal, but she also just had a baby two years before. Mm -hmm. And so she's a mother um, and now she's running faster than ever before. She wasn't even necessarily favored in her race. There's a dominant Dutch runner that had won the 5,000, 10,000, she was going for the triple and she'd been winning all the races at the 1500 level. And she just took off the last 200 meters and dominated. Um, and her posts about what it was like to get back to elite status and to be faster even than before um, as a mom, really, really, really moving stuff and, and um, how, how, how much it took to get, her, to get her body back into that competition mode. Yeah. Um, and then Allison Felix, of course, another of course. champion, the, the most winningest, uh, the, win the winningest track athlete ever for in, in the United States history for the, I think maybe in history, 11 medals. Mm -hmm. Um, she won her, with her own shoe after she had gave birth. Nike lowballed her on some offer. She yeah, that was big news when basically she was pregnant. And the way that Nike works its contracts with its female athletes, there was something like a seventy percent drop in her salary, mm. and just basically a lack of long term support for people that are having children. Basically, the the, the message being like, well, you're never going to be back to form. So we're just not gonna pay you right, in a manner that's measure it. Can measure it. That created a big kind of hullabaloo. Lindsey uh, Krauss wrote a bunch about that, that put you know Felix in, into kind of a mainstream conversation around female athletics and to see her not only you know, come back and perform at a high level, but to just absolutely crush it. Yep. And that image of Allison walking with her daughter to me is like one of the iconic images of, of Tokyo. It, absolutely, she Incredible. won the, uh, I think ended up being bronze in the 400 in, a, mm -hmm. in an amazing race that the Bahamian legend, uh, she defended her gold, I, her name's escaping me, but she was amazing. A Allison came in third and then the four by 400, the women just destroyed the field. I yeah. mean, we were, they were ahead by so much and she was one of the, one of the members of that. And um, now like the winningest, winningest track and field athlete ever. 11 eclipsing, medals. Eclipsing Carl Lewis's 10 medals. Yep. And, her, and, she had, and she did it wearing her own shoes, Sash, I think. S-A-Y-S-A-H is the brand. So Sash or Sash, it's I don't pretty know. Pretty cool. Um, but that's her brand. And so, you know, props to two moms. Cause you know, Serena Williams gets a lot of credit for being the mom that's coming back and how hard it is to come back and be at the top of her sport. And she's gotten to the finals multiple times. But now we're talking about, this is kind of the first time I can remember mothers with young children actually winning mm -hmm. gold and yeah. becoming the world champion. Yeah. I mean, that's. And also not, you know, without the, the resources that Serena yeah. has, yeah. Yeah. you know, at the yeah. same time, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's cool that Serena's doing it too. It's not to not to knock her, but just to, as comparison, as a yeah, yardstick, yeah. like of that, that's the level these women are at. Yeah. Yeah. Also, shout out to Molly Seidel for the bronze oh, yeah. in the women's marathon. Her second ever marathon or something. Yeah, I know, it's crazy, <laughs> it's right? Crazy. That's maybe the it's craziest story ever. I know. <laughs> second ever marathon, or is that right? Or third? I'm not sure. First ever was the misspeak. trials. Yes, and I she think, qualified. Is that, yeah, is yeah. that true? Yeah, yeah I think yeah, that's yeah. wild. Yeah. 
Um, pretty cool story. It is interesting looking back on on Tokyo, and you know, I'll, I'll fully admit I wasn't wed to the television in the manner that you know I, I have with past Olympiads. You know, part of that's just being busy. Another part of that is just being untethered from. You know, we don't have cable, so it's not as accessible for me. And the time difference. Mm. You know, there's a lot that's been written about a drop in viewership. I don't know how much of that has to do with it being pandemic oriented and just a weird Olympics in general versus um, this age of social media where it's impossible to not know what's happening when it's happening. Like the idea that you're gonna wait, not know, sit down at prime time and watch it unfold on NBC is just not reality anymore. I think it's also lack of star power. Uh, You know, there was no Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps or, I mean, Simone was there, but even she didn't like, she ended up having to pull out and so uh, of some events. So um, I think there was a lack of star power to be but honest I think, with you. But I think the idea that you can look at like Nielsen ratings or whatever right. and say viewership is down, but I would suspect that engagement was as high as it's ever been. It's just that people are consuming this in short clips yes. on social media. That's they're going true. to YouTube or they're seeing a little clip on Twitter or Instagram. They're consuming it. They're just consuming it in different ways. So the traditional notion of gauging uh, you know, viewership and, and engagement with the public, I think is antiquated. No doubt. I mean, it's happening across all sports, you know, yeah. all major sports are having to wrestle with the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And I feel, I still feel for the athletes, like the idea that as soon as you're, you're, you're done competing, you have like, I don't know, 24 or 48 hours to skedaddle and get out of there. Like the whole experience was shortcut or truncated due to COVID. Mm. And there's a really interesting piece that an athlete called Race Imbedin, who's a fencer, I believe, wrote for The Guardian and basically just giving his firsthand experience of what it was like to be there. This was his third Olympics um, and, and just lamenting the fact that typically, you know, the, 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 the value of the experiences in all the people that you meet and the encounters that you have and going to the dining hall and just, you know, meeting all right. the athletes. And so like none of that. It's like everywhere you went, there was nobody there. Like it was just lonely. He had his teammates, but a lot of athletes like feeling lonely and isolated. Mm. And, you know, on top of that, he points a sort of finger at the IOC, which is an easy target, um, and it's inherent, you know, hypocrisy in that it stands for supporting the athletes, but really it's just about profiting off the shoulders of the athletes and not really catering to their, to their needs. Mm. So, you know, I think there's some issues that we need to unpack. Uh, uh, Alexi Pappas came by the house the other day, um, who is an Olympian for those that don't know, was competed in the Olympics for Greece in track and field. She made a movie called Olympic Dreams. And, yeah. and a lot of that movie is about being in the dining hall and meeting all these right, other athletes. Right, right. And I said, what is your, you know, you weren't here, but like, what is your, do you, have you talked to some of your friends who were there? And she just said, I feel bad for, you know, all those athletes there that, that were kind of robbed of the type of experience that made it so meaningful, you know, for me. Yeah. So anyway, cause that's what makes the Olympics. But hey, so anyway, got, LA's next, yeah. 2024. People don't know this, but you and I, when we first started talking about doing something together, it was gonna be built around maybe going to Tokyo and mm-hmm. covering the Olympics in a profound way right. for the RRP. Yeah. Should we roll out that game plan for LA? I think we should, man. I think we should too. We got time to plan for it. Yeah. I think it could be really great. It's here. 
There's no reason not to do that. You got friends of the pod that could be really good. Like Alexi would be great. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course we could build a team around it. I yeah. mean, yeah, I, I guess we can sort of say it publicly now, but there was um, a plan afoot for us to take the podcast to Tokyo, set up shop, get a lead sponsor involved so that we could get a location that was either in the village or just outside the village and create a lounge where athletes and, and all the kind of fancy people that attend the Olympics could drop by, eat food, hang out. And we would just podcast every day, yep. live stream it, get these athletes off the podium after they did their five minutes on the Today Show to get the real story and kind of beat the networks at their own game by creating you know, really rich content. And we were gonna do some narrative stuff too, man on the street stuff, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so now we have LA to look forward to for that. Yep. Plenty of time to plan. Got to do it. Doing a daily show. Yeah. Where's where's the? But you got to figure out where the where your uh, studio. Your, where it would be. Yeah. Yeah. The got to be downtown studio. by the wherever like you stadiums. know the kind of center of gravity is. I mean, being inside the village is really. I don't know that that's really where you want to be because only the athletes can get in there. Yeah. But you know, like any big event, just outside of the village, there's you know basically these locations that corporations take over to create experiences for the attendees and the athletes like to go there. So it would be about figuring out where that might be. Right around the SC campus, right? Isn't that where it's all gonna be? I guess, I mean, LA's so sprawled out. Yeah. So it would be a matter of looking at where all the venues are and finding it. Yeah, I, I would assume is the vill- is the is the village going to be down by USC? They're building a massive another big arena like right next to the Natural History Museum right now. Right. Um, I was just at the Butterfly Garden, so I saw that. Uh, <laughs> listeners, the Butterfly did. Garden is fabulous. Stop playing your man card. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm a dad now. I don't know if you know. I go to the Butterfly yeah. Garden. Um, all right. Well, more to be revealed on that. Yeah. Let, let's pivot to a couple more serious matters. Um, obviously it's Monday, what's the date? August 16th, when we're recording this, this will go up Thursday, the 19th. Um, today, as of today, we're in the midst of, of quite a bit of chaos in, in Afghanistan um, with everything that's going on there. Uh, just to kind of recap, not that people are unaware of this, after two decades of, of US occupation, $2.26 trillion spent. The US pulled its troops out recently. And the result is of course, this power vacuum that's quickly been filled by the Taliban, which has moved unbelievably swiftly to seize control of the entire country, culminating in President Ashraf Ghani fleeing and the occupation of Kabul in the last day or two. Uh, Taliban just took the presidential palace I think today, mm. if not yesterday. Yesterday, I think. We've all seen the scenes at the airport. It's absolutely horrifying. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot being written about the Biden administration dragging its heels despite weeks of, of, of warnings, being incredibly slow to extract US citizens and, and civilians and embassy employees. There's this delayed withdrawal that's been causing death and chaos. Um, I don't know if you've seen Edward Snowden's rants on no. this on Twitter right now, but he's like all over this. Is he really? Yeah, because apparently Biden, there's, a, there's an article that I'll link up uh, about this, but Biden had said, I think just a couple of weeks ago uh, that the likelihood that there's gonna be, you know, the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country would be highly unlikely and kind of really? di- dismissing comparisons to the fall of Saigon as being 
out of hand. Um, and of course, that's exactly what we're seeing. I mean, he said point blank, the Taliban is not the North Vietnamese army. They're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's gonna be no circumstance where you're gonna see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy of the United States from Afghanistan. And that's exactly what you're seeing. Right. Just hours before I came into the studio today, I saw a video of one of the C-130s taking off from the airport and two people, I mean, the plane must More have been two. a thousand feet above the ground. I saw at least oh, two, two, peop- on a two people yeah. falling to their death who had been clinging on, on to the, the wheels or yeah. the fu- something, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. It's just there, was, there were more people as it was taking off. I think some people slipped down and decided not to die. And the other two thought they could stay on there. It's absolutely but That horrific. shows you what, what, what um, people are feeling about the Taliban taking over everything. Um, I, I mean, I, the Taliban might not be as, as great as the North Vietnamese army, but possibly the Afghanistan military that we helped build is not as good as the South Vietnamese army. I think that's army. probably really where, where the truth lies. There's some, there's some something there. You know, the fact that it just yeah. toppled so immediately, yeah. you know, is unbelievable. And, and in such you know, stark contrast to the dollar spent and, you know, the soldiers deployed over two decades. But not shocking, you know, like if you've read anything, I, I brought in this book, uh, CJ Chivers wrote The Fighters. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the New York Times, the best war reporter possibly of his mm-hmm. generation. Um, Iraq war veteran of the first Iraq war and then spent a lot of time in combat zones. and. Um, it's just a master work of battlefield nonfiction. And if you read that, um, you can't but think this is exactly what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, also that we should be out. So as opposed to like, for me personally, my feeling on this is is uh, when 911 happened, I was all for, uh, Biden, I was all for the US to, to go in and get the Taliban out. Cause obviously we know Taliban gave safe harbor to bin Laden and Al Qaeda and the Taliban are zealots that were murdering gay people and women and in, mm-hmm. in assassinating them in soccer stadiums. Uh, they were, uh, they blew up the Buddha statues. They were anti-intellectual, anti-human rights um, and pro Sharia law. And so, you know, we, we, it would be good to get rid of them is what I thought. Um, and I still thought that, I still, I still think that that was the right move. I didn't anticipate 20 years of war and occupation. Yeah. I mean, basically trying to repeat what the Soviet Union failed to do. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and listen, if, if what you built with 20 years and $2.26 trillion topples in a month, then maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it from the perspective of the, guys who are the war fighters, you know, the guys in the US military, as horrible as this pretends to be for women across Afghanistan and, and all sorts of people, but basically intellectuals and women and, and LBGTQ in Afghanistan, as awful as this could be, could become for them. Um, it will, you know, it is, will become, it, it, you know, it it's almost certainly will become, yeah. you know, uh, is that like, should we be, should we be there bolstering, stapling together this hollow a structure mm-hmm. that can get blow over as soon as we're not there? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that what we should be doing? Is that what we should be asking our children and brothers and sisters to die for? I mean, it's, it's an open question. If you read this book, you will think no, um, because you know if you're not 
wanted there, which we weren't wanted there mm -hmm. by a large swath of the population, then it's not going to work. And, be, and there is an argument to be made because we were there, the Taliban is more tolerated, not less tolerated. Um, now the Taliban has to run the country. Um, and you know, there's gonna be bloodshed, it's horrible, but at the same time, it's like, who should be doing that work? Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's what we're gonna find out what's gonna happen. That's not to downplay it, I'm not downplaying it. Um, there's a great episode on the daily from one woman's perspective, what she's going through in this process. Uh, it's very moving, it's horrible, um, but that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, it's amazing how fast it's yeah. happened. And I was seeing just today, the media landscape there has already shifted. Like people that own storefronts are taking down um, yeah. posters of women yeah. and they've removed music from the airwaves and the news channels are already, you know, reorienting their reporting to ensure that they're not offending Taliban sensibilities. Like it's unbelievable that it feels almost overnight. And I think when it comes to um, judging or addressing the immediate decisions, pulling out, not pulling out. How quickly did we get there to evacuate people? What could we have done differently? All of that really seems um, futile. What we really need to do is telescope up and and and, and evaluate the the arrogance of imperialism in its totality, mm -hmm. right? And this sensibility of like we're the saviors, we're here to help and. We're going to impose military force, and that's going to, you know, transform your country into a democratic utopia. I mean, how many times does that experiment have to fail, and how many lives have to be lost, and how much money has to be spent before we get the message that this is not, you know, our problem to solve, and it's not, um, you know, through our, it, it, it's not our sensibility to impose on such a foreign country to begin with. I don't know. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I think the question is how what happened? Like Afghanistan in the 70s was like uh like the jewel of the backpacker trail. Like when the Lonely right. Planet guides were first coming out, the very first guide, you know, Kabul is like mm -hmm. love is is like they they loved Kabul and they and they spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and travelers were there all the time in the 70s. You know, it wasn't far from India, India and Kabul and right. Afghanistan. And but Pakistan. then the Cold War, Cold War started, the Soviets yeah. started encroaching and then we propped up the Taliban to compete with the Soviets. We didn't prop so, up the Taliban. So we, we, um, we definitely got weapons and, and funds to uh, different, I guess, I don't know if it's tribes, but different, different factions of this kind of, because Afghanistan well, is the progenitor of the Taliban. Well, what ends up happening, I think if we, uh, Charlie Wilson's War is this movie that we both love, mm -hmm. Mike Nichols movie, Aaron Sorkin wrote the screenplay and it talks about this whole Soviet era. And I think what happens after the, they routed the Soviets and came out, there's that scene at the end where like Charlie Wilson is trying to get more funding to get um, social services back going in Afghanistan and, and basically, they didn't want to fund that. Nobody mm -hmm. wanted to fund that then. And so what ends up happening in that vacuum, I think you had forces from Iran and elsewhere coming in with money. And that's when the, the kind of the, the more Sharia law kind of Islamist, yeah. uh, but you know, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but that's, my, that's what I, I think is what happened. And that's when that started to, to, to take yeah. place in the eighties. So um, there's an interesting perspective that, that was shared today by 
uh, Dean and Aisha Shirze, friends of the pod, mm. uh, neurologists who actually met in Afghanistan. They were both there um, during their younger years. That's in contrast to this idea that our occupation was this paper tiger and it was all in futility and look how quickly it, it, it disintegrated. And their perspective is like, listen, you know, yes, that's true. But at the same time, a lot was done to empower women, support women's rights and, and create, you know, two generations or a generation and a half of women who are in a very different place as a result of that influence. And now, um, you know, us evacuating the, the area and the intrusion of the Taliban and the, the overtaking um, puts an end to that. And not only puts an end to that kind of movement, but also of course, imperils the very lives of these people. No doubt about it. I agree with that too. A lot too. of people are gonna get executed. It seems that way. Christiana Amanpour on CNN, who I love, uh, was interviewing a spokesman for the Taliban who happened to be in Qatar. Like another, like why is the spokesman for the mm. Taliban in Qatar? Like what is going on? Like who is funding this operation? Um, and uh, and that person was saying that we've, we've put out word, there there's, will be no reprisals, we will not, X, Y, and Z, you know, no one's gonna get assassinated, nobody to be, no, no reason to be afraid, come to work, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But there's also been reports already of uh, summary executions of soldiers that were in the Afghan military, some civil servants. So that report happened she confronted him with that. There's a five or six minute clip um, that I've got here that was on her, her Twitter yeah. wow. um, that we could put up there. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen. It doesn't seem like it's gonna be good. Um, and I, I'm in that in that sense, but like, what are you supposed to do? Like, you know, yeah. I don't know. Man. Yeah, like, what are what what are the choices? I don't. I, I would say this no matter what. Like, what are the choices? I remember when Obama was running for president, and he was like, "We're going to get out of the wars," and he didn't get out of Afghanistan and, probably because he didn't mm -hmm. want this thing happening. Mm -hmm. But uh, but you know, at some point, you have to either decide, okay, we're here for a hundred years or you pull out like eventually, so. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, yeah. but more will be revealed. Yes. Soon. Um, shall we pivot? Pivot to another. Yeah, this was gonna be the big story. <laughs> yes. We're like an hour and a half into the podcast. It was supposed to all be about <laughs> what we're gonna talk about next. Um, but you know, this is how this goes, right? <laughs> this, is, this is what happens. <laughs> um, the climate change conversation. Yes, no wonder Greta's so pissed off. No wonder Greta is so pissed off. Climate change gets real. So we're bringing this up because the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change released its sixth report on climate change in land. It came out last week. It is the culmination of 500 plus authors, I believe, with mm -hmm. 14,000 papers cited. And it's this really robust synopsis essentially of where we're at with climate change. And it ain't good. No, essentially what it says is that by 2030, we're gonna be at 1.5 degrees warmer than what would be natural mm -hmm. without human influence and the release of of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And no matter what we do between now and 2050, it's 2050, not 2030. No matter what we do between now and 2050, we will not be able to stop that rise to 1.5. Mm -hmm. Right now we're at one or 1.1. 1 .1. I think we're at 1.1. 1 
yeah, 2050 should be in the next 30 oh, years. Okay. Uh, 1.5 is, is right. No matter what we do no for the what. next three, 30 years, we're going to see this rise to this 1. escalation 5. and there's going to be obviously uh, repercussions of that, that are unavoidable at this point. Yeah. That's if we completely shut, if, if we just said, and this came out in the daily podcast yep. um, that came out yesterday, today yep. on this, uh, two days ago, two yeah. days ago, yep. uh, basically saying like, if we just, Flick the switch on carbon emissions today and went to zero immediately. We'd still have thirty years of rise of rise to one point five. Yeah, but there's this window where we can take action because if we don't, if we do nothing, if we keep it as it is now, it won't be one point five. No, it'll be two or three or four perhaps, mm-hmm. and each little chunk means more fires, more flooding. More cr- potential crop failures and uh, cr- crop failures and geopolitical instability. Right. Yeah, and irreversible. No matter what we do, is ongoing ocean acidification, ice cap melting, rising seas. You know, we've just experienced July. I think I think July was the hottest month on record yep. as long as they've been recording this stuff. Um, fires, the floods in Germany, all these things that we're seeing. So the report is coming out in the midst of an experiential uh, experiential experience. Can I say that? Yeah, you can Where say we're all kind of having a tactile relationship right. with climate change it's happening. in a way that does feel unprecedented. Like it does feel like a tipping point. Because there's droughts here, there's yeah. fires in Turkey, there's fires in mm-hmm. um, all over, there's heat wave, you know, there's that crazy melt in Greenland. So yes, everyone's feeling it. And I think that what's, what's a little bit different about this IPCC report is that it's so irrefutable and it's so vetted with so many authors and Mm. so many papers cited that it becomes just absolutely undeniable that this is happening right now. And yet, and the daily podcast pointed this out as well, there is this sense among the public like, Okay, you know, you're sounding the alarm again. Like this is the same. You, you've already sounded it. Like we become. It's sort of a cry wolf thing. Like we've heard this, and there's a numbing. I think that happens with people and a disconnect between good intentions. I think most people don't want these things to happen. And if they right. were given an opportunity or an on ramp to participate in meaningful change, they would take it. But there's a lack of agency or a lack of education, understanding and opportunity to get involved in something that would be helpful. And I think that creates a sort of paralysis among most people. It's like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? And right. you know, meanwhile, I'm gonna go to work and live my life. Or you, know, you post something you think you're helping and really. Right, or yeah, some of the things that we're deluded into thinking are, yeah. are helpful are actually like placebos or you know, pacifiers. Right. Um, Aussie actor, filmmaker, Damon uh, Gamow, I think is Francis' name, has a- Damon gr- Gamow. Damon, Damon, Damon Gamow. Damon Gamow. Damon. I love Damon's work. <laughs> um, Damon has a great, uh, I call it a rant, but he's kind of more, more um, calm than that. And he kind of is imploring people to find their agency because there is this window of time that we can fix things. We know, and what's cool about this report is there is kind of like also a how-to to keep things down. One is sustainable land management, reforestation, regeneration, and soil preservation. Um, 
you know, alternatives to animal agriculture, wind, uh, you know, aquaculture, kelp farming, that kind of stuff. Uh, create more carbon sinks so we can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and then have a more sustainable future. But also, you know, one thing that I, I read in this report was um, income stratification, economic strat uh, stratification is really bad for mm -hmm. climate. Um, if, if there was less poverty and less, those extremes were a little bit closer together, um, we have a better chance of getting under that three degree, two degree right. marker. Um, and these, this is all based on computer models. So if you haven't read up on this, basically what happens is we have more data than ever. The data started to kind of get accumulated in 1961. Apparently that's like the big, mm -hmm. big time when it started happening. Now there's more buoy, buoys out there collecting water temperature. There's, there's more weather models and computer models and better computers. And so what they do is they feed this data into one computer model to, the, to a computer model that says, okay, what's gonna happen, extrapolate out 10, 20, 30 years from now. And then they do this, they take that same model, but they feed it basically the old numbers, the numbers without human mm -hmm. um, you know, intervention, without the greenhouse gases being admitted and what would have been the natural climate in that same period of time. And that's how you get this stuff. Right. And um, so it's not an exact science, but it's kind of like, what's likely, what's extremely likely, what's most mm -hmm. likely. Um, and those models and those algorithms are just getting better and better right. and better at figuring all of this stuff out. You know, um, it made me think of Elizabeth Colbert's book, Six Extinction. She has another book out now. It's more directly related to climate change. Um, and uh, I brought it in here, but she talks about how humans transcended evolution as soon as we, painted like the woolly mammoth on the cave walls. As soon as we created a way of communicating that was not verbal, um, that was the beginning of us transcending evolution. And by that, she means beyond the control of nature. Now we can dictate our own lives, no matter what nature throws at you. Um, not, not exactly that, but like basically, obviously nature's still king, but mm -hmm. you can innovate around, around it and still create, uh, you know, nurture your lives and communities and villages and whole entire agri agricultural based societies. And that requires a certain number of genius and a certain, certain manner of genius, but you can't separate genius and madness. Mm -hmm. And like, if you're gonna have genius, you're going to have madness. And so we have madness, right? We have like the madman on your airplane ride, the mass shooter, the Taliban, you know, zealots. Uh, there's madness kind of within our genius. And part of the madness is what do we do? It's paralysis, mm -hmm. you know, it's like we have this pandemic and we didn't do anything about it for months, you know, because we are like in some ways the frog in the boiling water. We don't believe it till it's there. And maybe there was a little bit of that in Afghanistan too. And we yeah. see it with climate change now, the pandemic certainly saw it in a more com compressed nature. And that's happening with climate change right now. Um, you know, what to do is a great question. Like, what do you, what, what do you do? What does Paul well, Hawkins think, say? Yeah, I mean, I think what to do, answering that question begins with going back to the sixth extinction and the thesis of that book, which is that the minute humans created a dualistic relationship with the planet through innovation and genius, and madness, it created this sensibility that there is us and there is the planet. We are who we are and this is nature outside of us. And I think that mindset is at the core of everything that we've created and destroyed. So 
Paul Hawken to, you know, um, piggyback on what you just mentioned, came on the podcast last week. He's got this beautiful new book called Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Um, it's an incredible solution-based book. And he came on the day that the IPCC report came out and irrespective of the kind of doomsday um, dystopia that that picture paints, he still maintains quite an optimistic disposition in that the solutions to this problem are available to us now. And this book kind of goes through all of them, you know, energy, land, food, you know, et cetera, all of the different ways. It's sort of a, 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 um, a follow-up to drawdown, yeah. but it has a very kind of spiritual holistic approach. Um, it's less about like, oh, here's a company doing something interesting in, you know, like growing seaweed underwater. It's more macro in terms of systems. And I think the sensibility or the intention behind it is to get us into a mindset of non-dualism in our relationship with the planet. Like short of having a spiritual reconciliation where we understand that we don't live outside of nature, but we, and, and we're not part of nature, we actually are nature. And we move towards a regenerative symbiotic relationship with the planet until we're able to do that, we're not gonna be able to solve these problems. Like you can hang your hat on, you know, like, oh, we should do wind power and that's great. But what we really need is a, a collective consciousness upgrade in terms of how we're thinking about this problem and approaching it. Um, and he's a gift. The book comes out, I think the podcast is coming out in mid September or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit um, of a wait before that happens and you can pre-order and I suggest, highly suggest everybody pre-order his book. I think it's gonna be a big deal when it comes out. Um, but I think what's so, kind of amazing and frustrating at the same time about all of this. And this comes up in the daily podcast is that we have all these solutions right now. It's really a function of will and most of the will being political will. Mm. Like imagine a situation in which we appointed like a global dictator or some kind of global star chamber (laughs) that could supersede (laughs) the decision of any president, right? (laughs) Who just said, here's like, you have one month before you have to stop producing, you know, cars that work on, you know, traditional engines. And you, you guys over there, you have, you have six weeks before no more fracking or something like, like, we don't have that world. It doesn't work. And so we're trying to turn around these, Titanic sized systems that have so much history and momentum behind them on a ticking time bomb schedule. And I despair of our ability to do that. So, So I think you've nailed it. They can't be, we can't turn them around. They have to turn themselves around. And so that there, that's happening with shareholder activism where people are actually going in to these companies, buying in and hitting shareholder meetings. It's happening with lobbying of governments because governments do mm-hmm. spend a lot of money and subsidize X, Y, and Z and can um, help in that regard. All of that takes uh, agitation from the outside. And so- Yeah, it puts pressure yes. to create the political will. Yeah. The question is, is it enough pressure? But the institution has to self govern itself. It has to, it has to accept this is science. And if we wanna be in business, we have to do X, Y, and Z. If we wanna mm-hmm. continue to function, and it's happening. Ford's putting out electric, ve- like that stuff is happening. Now, electric vehicles is also one of the drivers, correct me if I'm wrong, of this like desire to mine the bottom of the ocean. So it's like the problem which gets us back to Col- Colbert is like, 
you know, beware of the uh, unintended consequences of good intentions. Yeah. Like all of these fixes, what what is that going to uh, engender? Right, because is, that, well, that goes back to dualistic right, binary thinking, right? Yes, yes, and, yes. And, and, you know, instead of holistic systems thinking, and that's what regeneration is all about. It's yeah. like, these systems are incredibly complex. No matter how well-intentioned you are about like this being a solution, there are all these downstream implications of whatever decision that you make, whatever right. technological innovation that you, you know, push forward that you can't necessarily foresee. And so truly the only real solution is to live symbiotically in nature in accordance with the rhythms of the planet. And that requires us to develop a new appreciation for, you know, indigenous wisdom and how, you know, millennia of human, not millennia, but however back, you know, far back humanity goes where people were so in touch with their natural environments that they understood how to live in a manner that allowed them to survive and thrive while also, you know, tending to the greater well-being of the macrosphere. Mm. And so can we do that? Is it possible in our, you know, technology first age to pivot society back to that level of, you know, engrossed rich relationship with the natural environment that supports us? Or are we just gonna punt and go to Mars? Mars and hang our out. hat on like, well, we're gonna, we've always figured out a way to innovate our way out of this. And so we're right, gonna well, do it again. That's one line of thinking. I don't buy that because like, that's not being a steward and that's, that's not the, the, mm. the type of thinking that you're talking about from that Paul Hawken is promoting. Yeah. Um, a circular, more kind of holistic way. Um, you know, we're, we will see, but I think, Watch uh, Damon's great rant because he's Damon mm. is asking us to find Demond. our agency. <laughs> yeah. um, he's asking us to find our agency, which is why we're talking about it, right? We're talking about it so that everyone starts talking about it, like you know, amongst each other, at work, wherever. Um, we need to talk about it because it's it, it it it's the same. It's exactly what Greta's been saying for about three years now. Mm-hmm. She's been saying this same stuff. Like she must think that like. Like who We're does she insane. live with? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's been saying exactly what's in this report yeah. for three years, if I'm, if I'm not yeah. wrong. Yeah. So, um, but it begins, it begins with changing ourselves yeah. to bring it down to a, a Buddhist perspective. Like you can't change the world until you inhabit this, you know, the sensibility that you're, you're, you're living your life in accordance with those rhythms yourself. Like that puts you in a position to create a ripple effect out. Right. I mean, there has been, this is not to say there hasn't been examples in human history where external fixes have worked. I mean, it, it worked in World War II, but like that, there was a lot of self-preservation involved in that because not, the Nazi, Nazi Germany was invading other countries. Right. And, and so, now we're asking, and the daily right. podcast points this out as well, like we're asking people to self-sacrifice for the betterment of a future generation to be, um, to be, you know, communitarian in our choices. And so that's asking a lot of people to do. We've seen people do it in the past. Yes, their backs were up against the wall, Nazis, et cetera. Yeah. This is a little bit different, but in an era where, you know, we don't have a draft and people are not um, acclimated to any kind of civil service, 
are we able to, you know, kind of cohere around this idea? And when you look at, you know, all you have to do is open up Twitter and see how we can't even agree on a shared reality to think that's a, that's a moonshot. It is discouraging. And you look at Afghanistan as an allegory for the failure of an external fix, how you can't fix something from the outside. You can't kill a dark thing. You can't, from the outside, you can't do, you can't, that kind of thing won't be sustainable. It may be, it may work for 20 years going to remission, but it's gonna come back unless you're always, always there with your thumb mm-hmm. on it. And, uh, and so now we're talking about this type of thing and external fix, you know, can we, can we adjust or do we have to all adjust? you know, at the same time, mm-hmm. like come together and all adjust. We've, we've done that, you know, the pandemic is also a lesson that we can do some things pretty quickly. Um, you know, it didn't, it's not, it hasn't worked hundred percent. We've had a problems. We still have Delta, blah, 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 but we did get a vaccine. We have gotten people, you know, it, there's less people getting hurt now in the city that we're living in or getting sick now than there were before. Mm-hmm. It has worked to some degree. Right. But I look at it through like an addiction model. Like imagine, right. you know, we're all addicts to our lifestyles right, and the conveniences, sure. you know, to which we orient our lives. And we need to have, we need to hit a bottom with this. So the elevator's going down, how far down does it have to go before we go, holy shit, like I need to change. Well, also right? like the-, the pen- How much more pain does the earth have to suffer? How many cities right. are gonna have to, you know, be underwater? Well, cause you How never imagine yourself displaced. in the city underwater course, because right. like, like with, with well, the pandemic, that's at least the denial. Like, yeah. It's like, well, I'm good, it's yeah, cool. Exactly. Like, look, we did these other good things. We'll figure this out. Like it's, it's, it's very similar in that regard, our relationship to it because we're so terrified of having to let go of the things that we've become accustomed to. Right, there was a certain amount of self-preservation involved in the lifestyle adjustment with the pandemic. But this is like, you can't really imagine yourself in the city that's inundated by floods. Like one of the things in this report is that these tidal floods that used to happen once a year, maybe are gonna happen four times a year or something like that. Like all these, the rainfall gets worse, everything gets worse. The droughts become more frequent and common. yeah, and we're seeing that, right? We're seeing that in our mm-hmm. lifetime. I don't know, man, but just to like end this with a couple things that we actually can do Let's in go. our lives that are practical. Um, here's an idea, it has to do with laundry and washing your dishes. Do you do your own laundry, Rich? <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> Sometimes, I do. If, if, but I'm now gonna do it differently than I have historically done it by virtue of revisionist history, Malcolm Gladwell's latest episode called Laundry Done Right, where he digs deep on laundry, (laughs) which sounds weird. Yes. Uh, And of course has a revisionist take on how to do it correctly. So I will freely admit that my approach to laundry in terms of uh, trying to be a good ecological steward has been to make sure that I purchase the eco-friendly soap that's made with natural ingredients, trying to limit the number of loads that I do. But what I have not done has paid is it has been to pay attention to water temperature. And what this podcast explains, it's kind of fascinating, is that all of our focus on um, the chemistry of our soap is misplaced when that focus should be placed upon um, water temperature because I don't know the stats, I'd have to listen to it again. Maybe you know offhand, because I think you listened to it more recently. 
but yes, most of the, 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 the kind of <laughs> ecological damage is a result of using uh, warm and hot water. It's something like 70% of energy can be saved. So it's about, it's right. about carbon. It's about, it's about uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. So you and save rather, 70% of emissions if it's warm water versus cold and 90% of it's hot water versus cold. Right, and so rather than getting the eco-friendly soap, we should be uh, looking at the chemistry that goes into creating a detergent that allows you to effectively wash your clothes in cold water. Right, because most detergents, they they end up washing better in warm water. Right, and, and so it's we all go to warm, especially with the lights, right. or I mean the, the whites and yeah. the lights and stuff like that, yeah. um, which I've done many times. And, and you know, getting soap that, that causes too much suds because it uses more water because the, the cycle won't stop until all the suds are gone and you want to be using like ridiculous amounts of water and yep. the amount of energy that it takes to heat that water um, is really where the environmental damage is taking place. So if you, if you had a polymer that would allow you to wash your clothes in cold water with very little suds, that's kind of like the holy grail. So Malcolm goes and visits like this chemical engineer, Procter and Gamble, and he just falls in love with corporate America. <laughs> well, <laughs> like specifically with the engineers at Procter and yeah, Gamble, yes. Um, but it was interesting, you know, and it has yeah. changed how I think about this. And of course, the close cousin to laundry, which is detergent or um, dishwashing. Uh, dishwashing detergent. Yeah. Similarly, where, um, you know, I often, I generally like rinse my dishes before I put them in the, the dishwasher. Yeah. And apparently, at least Me with too. respect to the latest dishwashers, you don't need to do that. And most of the ecological damage because the new dishwashers are so eco efficient and capable that you shouldn't rinse your dishes beforehand and you would save a tremendous amount of water. They say that if you have eight dishes or more, run the dishwasher every night. Right, and that which saves I would never more, do. That saves more water and energy than if you had just the, the hot out. water on for two minutes. Yeah. And so, which I would never do either. But I will say this, I am a cold water uh, clothes washer. I've been a you cold are, water- you I, are. I've been a cold water launderer for at least 10 years. So this is the thing that comes up in the podcast. <laughs> They're like, they make this decision that if you're gonna hire somebody, the first question, maybe the only question you need to ask them is how they do their laundry. Right. If they say they're a cold water person, you, you, you hire them immediately. Because the idea is like, they, she, he actually hires his friend's firm to go and do like market research into mm -hmm. who are these cold water washers. And they all end up having like incredible detail oriented, like recall and what models they buy <laughs> right. and why they're doing everything. And I am like not that cold water washer. I'm not the guy that's like super hyper detail oriented about every deep thing they do. I'm more of an in intuitive cold water washer. Like you just knew, you just like, I feel like cold water is the way to go. I'm an intuitive. It makes sense. I do the right thing intuitively most of the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you? Okay. <laughs> Would April agree with that? I think so. <laughs> I think we just found the quote the quote for the podcast. I am, I am an intuitive person who, wait, say it again. I do the right thing intuitively. Most, most of the, the time. time. <laughs> I think that's how you should introduce yourself. I'm not, I'm not. In, well, they a cocktail said that party. Like, who are these superhumans that know all this stuff? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not that cold water washer, uh -huh. but um, I am a cold water washer. Yeah. I also like how the episode is like, what's cool about it to me is he's, he's kind of, in, even though it's funny to hear him going to Procter and Gamble and and talk up people who make Tide and Tide being the, apparently Tide is the best detergent to use in cold water because mm -hmm. it keeps your, it, it's and engineered Cascade to do it. And is Cascade is apparently at the cutting edge of science in terms of 
Washing dishes. But, you know, he backs it up because, like, apparently Procter & Gamble's whole campus is wind-powered. Like, they are they are mm -hmm. doing the right... This is an example of an organization that is look that is doing what we're suggesting. Right, and I think what's cool about it is that it's so easy to just vilify these gigantic conglomerates right. when, in truth, reality is more nuanced and complicated than that. And we have to rebuild trust in institutions, right? Like, from both sides. And it's not just right wing who's been going after institutions like the news media. It's also people on the left doing it, especially in the health and wellness and the lifestyle industry. And there is an exa there is a time now to rebuild trust institutions. And it feels super weird for me to say it since I felt like a rebel most of my, mm -hmm. especially from my teenage years till I was in my thirties until just recently really. Um, and now I'm the guy like, yes, we need to have more trust in our institutions, which is, is just so, it like doesn't seem like even sit right for me to say it, but it yeah. is true. I do believe that. And this is an example, this episode kind of shows you why that's true. Yeah, and I think it it's important to, to um, really unpack these counterintuitive narratives in the sense that, listen, if you're the proprietor of an all natural uh, laundry detergent that creates a lot of suds, I'm sure you're very proud of your product and, None, none too pleased to find out that actually your goal being to save the planet, you're working at cross purposes with that. Yeah. You know, that's disturbing to find out. And at the same time to understand that these big corporate players might be onto something worthy of exploration because our instinct is we wanna, we wanna celebrate the little guy or right. the person who's, or all natural is, you know, by necessity good. And it doesn't always operate that way. You see the same thing in, in, in philanthropy, like we are emotional beings and we wanna donate to the causes that we feel strongly about. And yet from uh, kind of an effective altruism perspective, that's not necessarily the best use of your money. Like you could save more lives if you just, gave it to uh, a company that makes malaria tents as opposed to you know, some organization that's trying to feed underprivileged kids in a food desert urban environment. But our emotions come into play yes. and we wanna believe certain things. And I think that um, complicates all of this. One reason this is important is just to underline is that he says in, the po in his, his podcast episode, uh, 25 billion loads of laundry are done every year um, in, the, in, North, in the United States and Canada. And so these small decisions actually do extrapolate and create sure. quite a big- It's dent. unbelievable. Yeah. So if everybody just started only washing with cold water, that would be huge. It'd be huge. Or if Procter and Gamble or whoever comes up with the ultimate laundry detergent that allows you to clean your clothes effectively without heating the water at all, mm. like that makes a huge difference. Didn't uh, Adrian, Grenier have though a counterpoint to detergent pods. Yeah, he did. So he's uh, coming, I did a podcast interview with him a while ago. It hasn't gone up yet. Um, you know, kind of actor, environmentalist for a long time. He put up a video on, on Instagram recently about detergent pods and I talked about it with him on the podcast. Basically those pods that are wrapped in a very thin layer of plastic are sold on the premise that you just put them in and that um, wrapping completely dissolves and allows you to wash your clothes and it cuts down on container costs, et cetera. But in truth, and I haven't vetted this, so I don't know whether this is true, but from what I understand what he said and some other experts that 
he was interviewing or speaking to about this, that plastic becomes invisible and porous, but it actually doesn't dissolve. It becomes like this uh, imperceptible gooey gel that just never ever goes away mm. and ends up of course seeping into our waterways and right. ultimately into our seas. And no doubt, you know, contributing to all manner of ills, whether we're aware of them or not at this point. So no detergent pods. <laughs> right, um, although that could end soon because Marcus Erickson at Five Gyres was telling me that there, that he's actually in touch with the people at plastic companies that are looking at a new polymer that will, that will make plastic itself, just all plastic that's wrapped up could become biodegradable at some point. Um, and if that is true and that does happen and that's maybe not in the too distant future, there's actually some tests happening right now then that, that could be a replacement for that. We gotta get rid of plastic. I know. It seems like- It's in, an innovation that, uh, it's our attempt to innovate out of this mess. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break and pivot to listener questions, shall we? Let's do it. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend, Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Presto, we're back and we materialized a new human. What's up, Ted? How are you, man? Good to have you here. Ted McDonald is in the house. He's gonna contribute to answering these listener questions. Ted is a longtime friend of both Adam and I, but for separate reasons, mm. like our lot, like it's weird. Like we've known each other. We, I think, I, I mean, I've known you for like 20 years. Yeah, solid 20 years. And you know Adam through a Close completely different set of circumstances yeah, for right. an equal amount of time. Exactly. Which is exactly. wild. Yeah. yeah. You guys know each other through LA Yoga? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And when LA Yoga, when I was helping to start that publication, we got in contact because he was, doing adventure yoga, which he still does, adventure yoga retreats and was already a, mm -hmm. a yoga stalwart in the community. How do you guys? Through the yoga community oh, really? in LA, through Maha Yoga That's originally, right. I think, yeah, right? We used to go do yoga together. Yeah, so Ted <laughs> is not only a very accomplished yogi and yogi yoga teacher, you're a yoga studio owner, you're a yoga practitioner, you're an adventure athlete, an endurance athlete, an Ironman, a coach, what else? You do lots of stuff, man. Uh, a dad. A dad. A dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kindergarten parent as yeah. of Wednesday. Um, uh -huh. But uh, lead groups around the world. I think that's one of the 
right. one of the big things. The retreats that have been a huge, a huge uh, asset mm-hmm. um, and bright point in my life, I would say. Yeah. And a junk. He's like the the. He joins the yoga kind of left. I guess would that be left brain, like the yoga world with the high performance athlete right. world, right? In a in 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 his own life, but also working that way with with different athletes and clients, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think you know, interestingly enough, um, I ran my first marathon and took my first yoga teacher training with Max Strom. Do you remember mm-hmm. Sarah Powers? Yeah. And T.S. Little. Max for sure. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, Sarah Powers and T.S. Little way back 20 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I did my first marathon. Never thought I would ever do a marathon hmm. and sort of got convinced. I always say I got suckered into doing my first marathon and uh, just fell in love. I fell in love with training. I fell in love with racing. I fell in love with the experience and the people and the energy and the vibe. And it was just so great. And I, I'll never forget crossing that finish line and in tears because I, first of all, wasn't even believing that I could actually do it. But then I thought, wow, if I could do this six weeks prior was not part of my sphere of consciousness. Now, what else is there that I don't know that I can do? Mm -hmm. And that started this whole like, well, I'll try a triathlon and then I'll just start adventure racing and then we'll just keep going. And it was that whole thing. At the same time, the yoga for me was always the glue that kind of kept it together. Right. There you go. Yeah, it's cool. It's really cool. And you left something off his resume. What's that? He coached me to the fourth place finish in the Catalina Swim Run <laughs> Experience. Oh, you were co- you were coaching Adam. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah, even yeah, know yeah. that. Yeah, right. In the oh, beginning. Wow. In the How beginning. did I not know that? <laughs> I think I might have told you. Maybe you did. I don't I know. Did. I don't yeah. remember hearing that, but that's cool. Yeah. And then um, he fired me. No, just kidding. <laughs> you got fired, right? <laughs> now you're with the Envol guy, right? Like what happened? I don't know, you know, things change. That's right. <laughs> change. We grow, we grow out of these relationships. Exactly. Um, but I never grew out of my relationship with Ted. We haven't seen each other in a long time, but yeah. we were both at the same wedding in Telluride. It was super nice to reconnect and Absolutely. meet your family and all of that. And uh, I invited you to come by the studio. Adam was like, he should join for the listener questions. We have questions that are right in your wheelhouse, so yeah. why not, right? Why not? I cool. love it. I appreciate yeah. it. So I will bow it's out good, of listening to questions have you here today. this time because you guys will be there. <laughs> no, go back to Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> I, I've yeah. got to get there. Is a whaling shift. boat with your name on it <laughs> headed to Greenland right now? Yeah, it's true. I, I am the ice cream guy on the whaling boat. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Just stay off the laudanum. <laughs> all, right. Um, all right. Our first question is from Nate from Colorado. Boom. Hi, Rich. Hi, Adam. This is Nate from Colorado. And yes, it is okay to play this on the air. First of all, I just wanted to say thanks for everything you guys are doing. Roll On has quickly become one of my favorite parts of the podcast, and I look forward to it every two weeks. I love the off-schedule, off-program banter too, so don't be self-conscious about that. Last episode, you guys answered a question about what doing the work means. But what I am wondering is what you do when doing the work becomes stale stagnant or an added stressor to life to try and fit in. I've been quote unquote doing the work for a few years now, having adopted a whole food plant-based diet and always having a morning routine that has consisted of some combination of journaling, meditation, and exercise. But after doing this for several years, I find the practice becoming stale and unfulfilling, and it has developed an almost negative connotation for me. It feels like a chore and has sort of become a list of conditions I need to meet daily 
in order to feel okay about my day as well as feel good about myself mentally. And at times it feels like it's adding stress to my life rather than helping me cope with life. So my question is, have you guys ever experienced this? And if so, how did you handle it and what advice would you offer? Thanks again for all you guys do. It's a constant source of helpful information and inspiration. Thanks again. When self-care becomes OCD, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Ted, you wanna tackle this? Sure, uh, sure. I, you know, I think, I think that it's, it's important to be aware of the present moment. And I think oftentimes we get into the, you know, rituals that we're doing and we lose the fact that every single moment is a friggin' miracle. And it's so intense and overwhelming that I think oftentimes we step aside and we don't allow that in. Mm -hmm. So I just remember on yoga retreats years ago with Max, right? And being in triangle pose and looking out the window and seeing at Zaka Lake. I don't know, did you ever go to Zaka Mm -hmm. Lake? No. Anyway, just looking out the window and seeing this beautiful blue sky and these green hills and then all of a sudden just weeping. And I thought, what is is that? Why, Why is that? And I think I realized it was just because I was so overcome by the beauty of the moment. And I think, Oftentimes we lose, and I, I share this a lot on, on retreats or different conversations. It's like, you know, this glass, right? We can just feel the shape of it and the immense uh, thought that goes into it. Or, you know, one thing I was thinking is, you know, when, when you're journaling, how often do you stop and look at, take a magnifying glass and look at the fibers inside the page? Or like Deepak Chopra used to say, you know, don't just look and go, oh, wow, those flowers, they look so beautiful. Like mm. stop for a second and feel the immense miracle that really is the moment. And I, and, and I, and I don't know if this, because, this happens because, you know, uh, you know, being someone who had, you know, who felt like I was gonna lose my life at some point, right? <laughs> and then, you know, being a sober guy now and having that, sort of deep sense of gratitude for the moment, or if that's something you t- can develop, mm-hmm. you know, as someone who hasn't had an experience like that. Mm. But I really feel like no matter what it is, no matter where you are, no matter what you look at, whether it's a person or a thing, there's, there's this, and it's perception, right? And they talk about this a lot, but it's shifting your perception. So, you know, just one more thought, is, which is, you know, they talk about ashrams, right? You go mm-hmm. to ashrams, you need to be happy shoveling the shit before you can be happy doing the other stuff, mm-hmm, right? right? And until you can be happy doing that stuff, I think it's, it, it will become monotonous. So a solution I would say, Nate, is either to shift your uh, perspective on what is actually happening or maybe take a break. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the simple thing is just take a break for a moment and live free and, and, and don't be attached to that routine and have this, um, you know, free experience of doing things and see what comes up from there. Hmm. Should we just get up and leave and let Ted take over? Yeah. I think he just <laughs> that was beautiful. solidified his <laughs> Good Lord. value. I'm sorry for loafing for all these months. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, beautifully put. I love it. Uh, yeah, I think... 
it's about your relationship to the practices and the rituals. And what I sense is an extreme level of rigidity hmm. where there's a lot of self-judgment packed into the doing or the not doing, right? There's a referendum on how you feel about yourself and who you are that's based upon whether you're adhering to a very strict set of circumstances. Yes, of course, that becomes unsustainable. And I think the solution does lie in holding these things a little bit more lightly and anchoring yourself in the moment and understanding that it's not the ritual per se or the practice as much as it is your awareness around the practice and your ability to be present with these practices that are the conveyor belt to the transformation that you're seeking. So it sounds like you're holding on so tightly and you've been doing it for so long. Like I would suggest that if you've been meditating for this amount of time and the result is frustration, there's something broken in this <laughs> practice altogether because that's not the intended result that right. we're looking for here, right? So what exactly are you doing? What is your relationship to that doing? Um, and you know, if you're coming out of it resentful and burdened, then something is is fundamentally wrong. So it's about letting go of the, the attachment or the meaning that you're attaching to the results of this practice um, hmm. that's causing you to self-flagellate and letting go of it altogether. And I suspect that if you stop doing these things and maybe do nothing, you'll have an uncomfortable period where you're like, well, I'm supposed to be doing this thing. So my life's not gonna move in the right direction until I go back to doing that thing. That's what you need to examine here. And mm. if you are gonna journal, journal about that. Right, mm. right, right. And I'll just add one more thought that, that came into my head is, you know, spent years listening to Ramdas, right? And Ramdas, he said, all these different techniques are ultimately supposed to go away. Mm-hmm. and you're just supposed to be living in the moment. Mm. And I think it's a little different if you're analyzing your journaling and your thought thinking and you're you know, drinking water and you're having your vitamins and you're doing all that stuff. I think there's some stuff that you wanna do because that's your medicine. But I also think there are certain things like you're saying that you, you get stuck in. And I think at some point, some of those need to just go away and, uh, mm-hmm. and then you just live. Right, I feel like it's, <laughs> it's upside down, like the priority is on on like the practice as if the practice itself is the result as opposed to what you're really trying to do is become more connected. Right. Well, it's right. mindfulness, right? Exactly. You're trying yeah. to take mindfulness away That's from right. the mat, away from rigidity and into the world, you know, like behold the glass. Like I think of, I know Louis There is C- no glass. Right, there is <laughs> yeah. no glass. It's like, you know, you wanna take that, you wanna take that out and be in awe of as, as like you can't live your life that way, but you can find moments. Right. And so mm-hmm. like those mindfulness moments, maybe that's it, M- mindfulness moments. Mindfulness mm-hmm. moments. Yeah, <laughs> because if the practice Adams. is drained of its beauty, then you're missing the whole point altogether. Well, he probably feels that he is missing it. That's yeah. why he's asking that question. Right. But yeah. also, I mean, I don't think it's that unnatural to hit uh, to hit a plateau, is it? I mean, like a no, you know, like the but that's an opportunity. Obviously, right. that's right. that's like you're on the precipice of a breakthrough. Like something right. is trying to be communicated to you that could take you to a higher plane. So, focus the mindfulness and the journaling on what that block is and the frustration that you're having. And I think there's, you know. You're, there's there's this golden opportunity for you to kind of ascend to the next level in your awareness. The resistance is like overcoming that's like gonna be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. 
All right. All right. All right. Let's move on to the Bay Area. Aloha, Rich and Adam. It's Heidi here from NorCal. So awesome to hear you guys back on a regular role. Uh, no pun intended there. I have a question for you about finding the right coach fit. Uh, next year, I'm making the leap from Ironman distance to Ultraman, and I've done multi-day events, triathlons, but nothing compared to Ultraman yet, so I'm really excited. And I've trained off and on for the past 10 years with a triathlon team, uh, taking on some one-on-one coaching before the pandemic has closed uh, everything. So anyway, this year my team is back and they are training together, kind of like rising like the Phoenix. And now I'm thinking about my own coaching situation. And my question is, what are the best questions to interview the coach for a good fit? I think most coaches, including myself as a nutritionist, take an intro screening call. I'm interested in data, but it's not the only thing that drives me. And also, I manage bipolar type 1, and it's connected to my why. So I'm inspired by Courtney DeWalter not having a coach. I plan out my my self-coaching by one week at a time. It's worked out well. But I think I could benefit from having an objective, fluid structure, feedback, and yeah, we'll see where it goes. You can have permission to play this on the air. Mahalo. Thank you guys both. Thank you, Heidi. This question has Ted's name written all over it, <laughs> yes. so I'm gonna to defer to Ted. <laughs> okay. But I will say this one thing, when interviewing a prospective new coach, the only question you need to ask this coach is, what are your laundry habits? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, apparently, Do yes. you wash in cold water? <laughs> yes. That's it. If not, you're out. Yeah. I was wondering about the dryer because we hang our clothes yeah. as oh. often as we can. There you go. Then. Obviously, so, that's I mean, the is best that better? thing to do. Of course, of course. that's better. <laughs> It no, I mean, is it better than hot water and in the wash? Like, should I cold water? You still Obviously, you cold water, cold water yeah. and still cold water. Cold water. And no, get right. tied. Yeah, no, like, like eco shit. opting but, out of the dryer and washing with hot water does not absolve you. Right. That's yeah. exactly. Well, I'm glad that <laughs> that's what we I brought got up tied because now I've got this whole. Uh, I'm going to talk to DK about it. I, I think. There's all these old school uh, brands that I'd like us to consider for ads. <laughs> I was gonna Brogan say. and I have yes. been Brogan and I have been talking about Twinkies. It. <laughs> Oreos are vegan. Twinkies. Yes. Come on, Oreos. The underreported <laughs> nutritional benefits of prepackaged Hostess products. Uh, yes. Oh my all gosh. Right. Ted, coaching. Uh, yes, Heidi. I would say that. Um, I mean, I don't know, for, you know, for me as a coach, one of the first things that I, if I'm gonna hire a coach, you know, whether it's a, so I've hired coaches for different events, specific mm-hmm. events, right? I train myself pretty well, but then if I'm doing like Ironman, I had a coach, right? Okay. Kilimanjaro, I, I put together a team um, for that just because I felt like I wanted to make sure I had the right body stuff and nutrition stuff and supplement stuff and training and all that sort of thing. Um, I, as a coach, and so, and as an athlete, I would like to know that someone that I feel like someone can get me there, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's it's as simple as that. Like, can they can they get me there? That's the first thing. Is there a vibe, right? Because you're going to be spending some time with them. There's going to be conversations. There's going to be back and forth, email, texts, uh, workouts. Do they understand you? Do they not understand you? Um, I personally like someone who has had some experience. I don't know, like they don't necessarily need to have done the Ultraman, but it, you know, some sort of- Have they coached other athletes who have done that race? Either that or have they, do they understand what it's gonna take to get through it? Mm -hmm. Meaning, have they suffered a certain amount? Do they understand what it's gonna take 
to um, recover from one day to the next, right? Because it's a stage race mm-hmm. versus a 24 or 48 hour nonstop race. Mm. So I think those kinds of questions, but I think ultimately, have they had some experience? Is the vibe there for you? And do you think that they can actually get you there? You know, I talked to a guy uh, recently who's, um, who tried to climb Everest and didn't make it. And he said that he thought it was his coach. So that's either A, passing the buck, right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Or it's maybe the coach was not right. Maybe there was not the right vibe there. So I think that it's an important relationship when you take on a big event like that. Um, yeah, so that's what I would, that's what yeah. I would say. I mean, I think that's all right. I would agree with all of that. On the vibe piece, I think you need to be clear on what your needs are. Like, do right. you need somebody to be an emotional support for you mm-hmm. or do you just need the workouts? Like, do right. you need feedback and what does that feedback look like? Do you need emotional feedback? Do you just need metrics feedback? Do you like to be left alone? Do you want somebody to tell you what to eat for breakfast? Like all of that is gonna be different depending upon the athlete. And you wanna make sure that you're in a good fit with a coach who can meet the needs that you require, but it requires clarity on what those needs are, first of all, so you're not mismatched. Right, and I, I, that's that's a good that's a good point because there's so much that goes into. See, I I look at as a coach, you know, I want someone to be getting body work done. I want there to be more balance. I don't want it to just be metrics and numbers and speed. It has to ha- nutrition has to happen properly. Sleep has to happen properly. So there there is that, and life happens, right? Mm-hmm. So in any relationship, in any event that we do, stuff happens. Kids, you know, we get sick. Kids go to school. They they're sick, or right. you know, in, is this coach going to be understanding of what right, you, the right. kind of gestalt of your life is? Yeah, and 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 it depends on how deep it is, right? Is it just a simple plan to say, here's the plan, see you later, or is it actually going to be more? of an in-depth relationship, mm-hmm. so. And do you respond to positive feedback or negative feedback? Like, do you need somebody yeah. to say, good job? Right. Or do you want somebody to say, hey, you're really like off the reservation here. Like, <laughs> right. are, you gonna, yeah. are you gonna bulk if they give you, you know, some negative feedback? Right. Is that right. gonna be a problem? Like, all of that is very personal. And I That's think right. with respect to Ultraman as somebody who's done Ultraman a couple of times, it's very different from Ironman. So yeah. most people that coach Ironman athletes, most likely have not coached somebody for Ultraman. True. Ultraman is completely different. Like Ted said, it's a stage race. It's fundamentally a cycling race right. more than anything mm. with you know a couple appendages tagged onto it. Um, and the way that you train for it is gonna look very different from the way that you train for any other kind of triathlon. You don't need to do any transition work. You don't need to do brick work. You don't really need to do any kind of tempo or speed work for the most right. part, unless you're already super accomplished and you need you know, to, to sort of hone that razor's edge. Um, so it depends upon your skill level at the time as well. So finding somebody who can meet all of those needs, I mean, it's, a tall order, but very doable. Yeah, and I'm glad that you're yeah, looking for exactly. a coach because I think you should have a coach right, for right, a race like exactly. this. Yeah, yeah. There is this temptation and I've heard this, not just from you, but from other people like, oh, I heard Courtney DeWalter and she's all about intuitive. And it's yeah. like, you gotta understand, like she is you know, an outlier. Like most yeah. people left to their own intuition to train the way that they feel are gonna lead themselves down you know, a dark alleyway mm-hmm. and it ain't gonna be good. And she had plenty of coaching right. along the way in right. the beginning. She has right, a foundation to, of yeah, that, absolutely, of course. Absolutely. So. Isn't it a 10 kilometer open water swim then like 
couple of hundred on the bike. And yeah, yeah, two, I mean, and for the 10 k swim, whatever. But like, right. yeah, <laughs> you're gonna you're going 90 on the bike the right. first day and 171 yeah. on the bike the next so, day. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got a little double marathon you got to run in there, but you know, it's all very doable. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> That's the uh, um, dessert. My, my advice is to make sure they can do that whistle with the, the pinkies that in their thing. lips. Like <laughs> while, that would be key. While swimming the I 10K. want a coach that can whistle me like that and then wear a headband <laughs> at all times on Zoom. Okay. Yeah. And the proper That's my and the proper snorkel mask yeah. for the swim. <laughs> Key. Yeah. yeah. And do they make you wear a swim mask slash snorkel <laughs> <Yes>. mask? Mandated. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll do one more question. And and this one's for me, and it's tailored specifically to Ted since he's here. And I think it's a question that that I think will be beneficial to a lot of people. And it's basically <clears throat> just about how you, Ted, see the role of yoga in the context of being an athlete. Like I often look at yoga and wish that I had been an avid practitioner of yoga when I was in my competitive swimming years and understanding the benefits of that, um, not just for kind of strength and balance and agility, but also restorative and injury prevention. And of course, you know, the true benefit of it, which is kind of, you know, uh, spiritual awareness. So how do you think about how yoga fits into being an athlete and performance specifically? And how do you sort of talk about how you recommend yoga for the kind of everyday or weekend warrior athlete? I recommend yoga for the everyday weekend warrior athlete, uh, you know, two to three times a week if if they could. But the truth is most people are like once a week, mm-hmm. right? And 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 that's it. And I, I almost see it as if you were gonna go run once a week. You could go for a jog once a week and go slow and go two or three miles or four miles or five miles. Once a week is not really gonna get you to a marathon if you're doing that. Mm-hmm. So yoga, I think is a similar thing. And in, in my opinion, it is, it is, again, like I said earlier, the glue that, that brings it all together. The first class I ever took was Brian Kest mm-hmm. back in Santa Monica, yeah. right? When he used to go up the stairs yeah. uh, and then there'd be like a little chest and you could just leave whatever money you That's wanted right. there. Yeah, it was like donation, donation only. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Early anyway, days of the LA yoga scene. Um, I think that, uh, so, so that day I, f- I fell in love with yoga because it was, it was as an athlete growing up playing uh, baseball and football and lacrosse back on the East Coast. Uh, you know, I, I I started that. And I was sore for four days and I couldn't believe it. And I could barely hold my body up. And I thought, wow, this is this is real. First of all, and it just made me feel so good. And just having stress in life, and and um, you know, I was at that time. I don't know how sober I was. It was maybe a few years, right? So it was just still still stressful. Mm-hmm. And it was a big sigh of relief for me. And every single class that I went to was a big sigh of relief. And that conti- then I started doing more. So I did that for almost three years, just yoga. Then I started running. I thought, ah, I want a little cardio in my life. So I'm gonna add a couple miles a couple times a week and ran two miles and was sore for four days right. <laughs> right? because I didn't run for almost three years. Yeah. Then. Uh, started to run again and realized how much the yoga practice actually helped me just balance out my body. So from a physical standpoint, in my opinion, I think that it is 
absolutely 100% necessary because from an athletic standpoint, you're just pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding and trying to get faster and stronger and faster mm -hmm. and stronger and faster and stronger. And there's not really a sense, I mean, now in the last maybe decade, there's been a lot more attention to recovery, but in my opinion, yoga is, is definitely something that people should be doing on a regular basis. Now, obviously the word yoga is such a huge umbrella. Mm -hmm. So what I would recommend is, you know, one or two classes a week, that's a little bit more of a flow style and at least one or maybe two classes a week, that's yin. Because sitting in those poses for a really long time and lengthening your connective tissue, I think has a huge benefit. I feel like that's one of the reasons why I've been able to keep my flexibility even though I'll do endurance events still. Yeah. So from a physical standpoint, I think that's a big thing. I think that, you know, back when I was adventure racing, uh, 2001 through five basically is the, kind of my four or five year stint in adventure races and anything from two to five hour sprint races all the way up to 24 to 48 hour races. And um, I remember passing team balance bar and the guy was cramping up and he was freaking out because his body was just locked up. And our team practiced yoga. I mean, we also hydrated and we had mm -hmm. like, we thought about all this stuff back then. And it, in a way it was sort of like, oh, wow, that hasn't happened to us, thankfully. Now, whether it's the yoga or whether it's the mm -hmm. nutrition or whether that guy ha was having a bad day or just got over some sickness, we have no idea, right? But the point is that I feel like it, it, it balanced out my athletic ability and continues to this day. That was 20 years ago, 15 years ago. My goal ultimately is to continue to do what I love to do for as long as I possibly can. And yoga will absolutely 100% be part of that. And so I don't, to me, I don't know that I'm gonna be doing, you know, 100 milers or, you know, ultimately maybe a half marathon trail run when I'm 100 years old or hike, mm -hmm. you know, I don't care if right. I walk or hike, but the idea is to be active, right? And I think that the the mental aspect and the spiritual, I think the spiritual aspect is a whole, you know, other, right. you know, episode, but the point is that I think from a mental aspect, you you see yourself a little bit differently. And I think that the yoga develops that over time. Oftentimes people come, as you know, they'll come in because, oh, I have the shoulder thing or, oh, I have a back thing or whatever it is. But then over time you start to realize, oh, wow, I feel better. And then you start to perform better outside. So, you know, we've talked in the past about um, the BMC guys. So I mm -hmm. used to work with, uh, right. uh, for about a decade, I worked with a professional cycling team and it was like pulling teeth to try to get these guys in the yoga room, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, cause there's- You would so share like videos and they're trying to get in the poses, yeah. like comical. Yeah. yeah. You'd go on their training camps and stuff like that. That's right. Yeah. And, and, but it would, they're so steeped in their idea of what cycling, professional cycling is supposed to be mm -hmm. that to have them veer a little bit was so challenging. I think that that's changed in general among athletes. Mm. And, and I think that's a huge, huge thing. I, I, I think that ultimately it helps us with everything. It, it helps us with how we live and how we operate and how we communicate. And I think the yoga practice brings a softer side. It brings the yin to the yang, right? And instead of, you know, 100 miles, 200 miles, 900 miles, it's, it's sort of like, hey, you know, let's, let's experience this. Let's experience the fiber of our mm -hmm. of our network, the fibers of our journal, and and have that be part of the experience, not just the numbers. And all of us are not competing as professionals, so I don't know. 
um, you know, about other people. And maybe it's different when you have to meet these certain metrics and perform a certain, you know, at a certain speed, et, et cetera. But I think for me, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a must do for sure. Yeah. You know, and two or three times a week, I'd say minimum. Right. Yeah. Well put. I don't yes. know if that's, yeah. uh, that's too much. Maybe. And we should just like, no, also like <clears throat> just qualify your bona fides here a little bit. I mean, you did Kilimanjaro, you've done all these adventure races. How many have you done? You've done Ironmans, right? Yeah. So yeah. I actually have only done one official Ironman. Uh-huh. I, I remember, so my first marathon was in 2000. Then I did the Malibu triathlon. Right. That was my first ever triathlon. And then I went immediately to adventure racing and started with um, what used to be the high tech adventure racing series. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. I do. So I got a couple of people and then I thought, oh wow, if I can get into the elite division, you know, that would be great. So we found, I, I was at a mud run. This is before Tough Mudder and Spartan, right? Uh-huh. So uh, we were at the mud run in Cam- at Camp Pendleton and the second place woman was right behind me. First place woman was a bit in front of me, second place. So I just kind of followed her to the showers and heard her talking about marathons. And I said, oh, hey, by the way, ever done any adventure racing? And she said, oh no, but we were gonna try to do this high tech. I said, well, I'm, I'm building a team. We just did this one. So why don't we start training together? She said, yeah, moving up to Pasadena. Mm. She became our female and we started competing and we did the balance bar 24 hour adventure uh, racing series. And then we do the Cal Eco series. And, and it was amazing. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, this, this, this goes a little bit back to, to Heidi's question too, which is there's one thing to do a workout for an hour, 45 minutes, an hour. It's another thing to do one to three hours. It's another thing to go three to five or six. It's another thing to go 10, 11, 12 mm-hmm. in a day. It's another thing to go overnight, right? And you mentioned with uh, Courtney, you guys were talking about hallucinations, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, so it's a whole other experience when you sort of walk through that looking glass and um, that's what happens when you go overnight. It's obviously not something, it's gonna be a different thing, Ultraman, right? Because you get to actually sleep a little bit, but anyway, um, and then uh, I would say that then Leadville and I eventually right. I did Ironman and then uh, Kilimanjaro was a few years ago, which was amazing. What did I you got, do with Leadville? I got frostbit, yeah. <laughs> frost nip, yeah. frost nip from, uh, wow. from Kilimanjaro. Yeah, Leadville, I did the Leadville mountain the, bike, the mountain sorry. Bike not the, not, yeah, that's yeah. right. Not, not mm-hmm. the run, so to be clear, cause the, and the bike just happened actually right. a couple days ago. Yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. Alex Howes. That's oh. right, yeah, yeah, he was, I think, well, there was the, or there was the gravel. They did a gravel version. Also, I think. Is that right? Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think yeah. Steamboat was the next day. Right. I think there's the, like the a Steamboat after. gravel. Yeah, yeah. I think Alex Howes won the gravel. I'm and not sure. Stetno, Stetno was pretty high up in Leadville. Oh, I don't he? see, but, but he's now racing gravel, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he was know. on BMC. For but years. you did a 50 BMC, mile race right. too, a run, right? Or 50, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 50 so 50, 50 K a few K. times, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. so 100 milers in the, in, in the future, little kids now. So, yeah. so training is right. not as, as uh, ample all that time, but uh, I love you know I love I love seeing what my body can do in a healthy way. So I have no interest in pounding myself into the ground sooner mm-hmm. than I need to be, but I do love to experience the unknown in a way. So I love setting up these experiences. That's why I said let's do Attilo in November. Right, we're going right? to be teammates. <laughs> oh, you are. <laughs> You're gonna gonna, that. He's going to. I'm going to be tethered to him, and he's going to run. Oh wow! And Pulling I'm going yes. to pull him. And I'm going to try him. to find a, a, a chair with wheel, with wheel, like not a nice. wheelchair, more like a lounge chair with wheels. Uh huh. <laughs> Excellent. Now, then I'll be I'll be pull, I'll be the guy on the water. I'll lead the swim. But we're still only going to do. I think we're just doing the fifteen. 
whatever the 15 whatever yeah, yeah i'm yeah. i'm I'll, I'll, i don't you think know, we're whatever. doing the full super cool yeah. i don't have time to train <laughs> right, yeah. I'm, I'm in the zero to three hour cap, uh -huh. cap. Yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> uh the other thing i'll 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 add to my you know been patting myself on the back here but but the inca trail so the inca trail oh, yeah, was a right. super fun mm -hmm. so normally it's a four-day event and I was leading a retreat to Peru and we had about whatever, 17, 20 people. And my friend who's an ultra guy now, he said, uh, hey man, why don't, we, why don't we run the Inca trail? I said, why, you know, why? You don't do that, right? And he goes, why not? You know, I said, oh, good question. So we talked to Carlos, my guy that I've been dealing with since 2006 going down there, he's my travel guide. And I said, Carlos, come on, man, we gotta, we gotta run the Inca trail. He goes, how many miles is it? Why would you wanna do that? Uh, 22. I think uh -huh. it's just 22 and it goes over a 14,000 foot peak and then down to 11,000, then over 13,000 foot peak, mm. right? So it's not that big of a deal as far as like a big deal goes, mm -hmm. but no one goes in one day. Right. Right. And so, and it took, and we didn't, we, we, tr we trotted it and, you know, it was kind of run hike and it was his first thing. But to, to do that and then to get, have you been to Machu Picchu? No. Have you been to no. Machu Picchu? Mm. Oh my gosh. So there is the sun gate that as soon as you come across and you see the sun, then you're looking down onto Machu Picchu. Mm. And every single retreat that I've ever led there, I always walk people up and I have them close their eyes and then they just open their eyes to see Machu Picchu. And you get that same kind of, you know, awe inspiring feeling and to have run all of this over the course of the day and then get there. We were both just going, oh my God, you know, we're just in tears yeah. from the experience. So it was a very cool thing. And the reason I say that is not because you know, it was any athletic feat. I mean, it is a decent athletic feat, but more so about that's the motivation, I think, is to find these experiences like that, like right. running the backbone trail, right. you know, or mountain biking the back, like different things. Um, and you've alluded to that on your podcast mm -hmm. multiple times, but um, is to find these things that just push us a little bit more and to, and to give us an experience that we wouldn't necessarily have instead of, you know, living in that little, box that we sometimes tend to just yeah. fall into. Cool. Yeah. Will you come back and do a formal coach's corner? <laughs> yeah. I'd love to. I'd love yeah. to coach's yeah. corners <laughs> being born. Yeah. yeah. Um, beautifully put my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks man. For Thanks for having me. Today. Absolutely. Um, if people want to connect with you, where's the best place to direct them? Do you have any retreats coming up that you're I'm in the, yeah, I'm in the midst of putting together a Malibu retreat in November. Um, and then next year I have a few things. I started doing a little research into Bhutan and Nepal. Mm. I just, I think that uh, I'd like to uh, hike up a little bit to some Buddhist temples mm. out there. Um, but as far as connecting, you know, Teddy McDonald on all the social right. media, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Um, not as active on Twitter, but... Uh, I would say that um, Malibu, and then you know we'll see what happens next mm -hmm. year. But I, uh, I just again, I just I want to continue to kind of create, you know, the unknown. Mm -hmm. And are you uh, looking for coaching clients? Is your roster full? Of course, full? yeah. No, it's not. No, it's not. Right. Yeah. So we got the yoga studio in Malibu, and five then do yoga. some online stuff. Five point yoga. Is it right? open now? Are you teaching in the studio, or is Ooh. it still? I am. You are. So yeah. So since April, we slowly started coming back and I thought, oh, yay, we're coming back. We're coming back. And then all of a sudden the Delta variant right. sort of like put a little mm -hmm. bit of a damper on that. Yeah. But people do still come to the studio. So if you're in Malibu, 
Mm-hmm. Then definitely come Drop by and check in. us out. Uh, we have a limited amount of classes, um, but we also do online classes. So if you're looking to get into yoga, I'm happy to sort of give you a little bit of a thing. Actually, I started streaming once the pandemic hit. I started streaming. Adam did a little piece for the New York Times, yeah, he's actually, in the New York Times mm-hmm. piece, which mm-hmm. was great. Um, but uh, I just because I felt like back then. Um, it was really important to start to share our resources yeah. as individuals. I really felt like that was important. So I thought if there's anything that I know how to do, it's help people move through stress. And it was a really stressful time. So I felt like that was important. And I kept doing that once a week. So usually on Mondays, I do a little mm-hmm. yoga for athletes. Uh, my friend is the race director for the um, Malibu half marathon, which happens in November. Mm-hmm. So we kind of stream to my channels and her channel and. And uh, otherwise it's for the members that, that come and join us, but I'm happy to have any of your listeners be yeah. a guest. And, and you do a Jackson retreat yeah. in the winter, right? Snowboarding. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So every year we go to Jackson Hole, uh, Tony Horton, who's a good buddy of mine, creator of P90X. So yep. he and I lead Ted and Tony's right. uh, ski yoga trip yeah. too. I laugh because it's it's like one of the Sounds most Sounds like fun. so chest pounding though. <laughs> I know. Like in, a little intimidating. Yeah, well, it's funny. People are like, you know, I'm a snowboarder or I can't really see. And Jackson Hole is intense, mm-hmm. right? So there's plenty of things to do as far as plenty of terrain for beginners, intermediates. And there's plenty of people who will come on the retreat and not ski. Mm-hmm. because it's Jackson, it's Jackson Hole, the Grand Tetons are right down the block. Yellowstone is around the corner. So it's an amazing place. So you don't necessarily have to. And the thing is we do yoga in the morning, yoga in the evening. Tony's a little bit more of a chest pounder mm-hmm. where uh, my whole idea is to help people in the beginning, in the beginning of the day or the end of the day, either recovery at the end of the day, so yin, or in the beginning of the day, just kind of set you up for the best ski day. And if you're a skier and you haven't done yoga before, skiing, it will change your life because you just feel like a different human being. Yeah. You just feel ready to, to, right. uh, to Beautiful. hit the mountain. Sounds so, dope, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to go. Yeah. Cool. Should go. <laughs> right on, man. We did it. We kept it under three hours. We did. Um, <laughs> yesterday at this time, I thought there's no way we're going to be able to talk for more than 45 minutes. Really? I go through this every, every time. Yeah. Imposter syndrome? A little bit of that. Yeah. Also just a sense of being uh, like unprepared. But they, well, look at us, we, we read a climate report. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> you feel good? Me? Yeah. I feel good. I feel, I feel verified. All right, you are. I verify you. I am thus uh, verified. You, you, have, you, are, you have a blue check in my heart. Oh, thanks, man. That's all, that's all that matters, yeah. mostly. Um, Ted, thank you for dropping in. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. For sure. Um, thanks everybody for listening. I don't take your attention for granted. Again, you can follow Adam at Adam Skolnick. I'm at Rich Roll on all this stuff. If you'd like to uh, send us a question for consideration on the show, leave us a message at 424-235-4626. You could check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. We'll have links to all the stuff that we talked about today. And uh, that's it. Thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music, all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Blake Curtis for videoing the show. We got a new team member I pointed out. Dan Drake is in the house. He's gonna be doing lots of video stuff and all kinds of other yet to be determined stuff. So welcome Dan 
to the RRP. Jessica Miranda for graphics, David Greenberg for taking portraits today, Georgia Whaley for copywriting. We got our boy DK on advertiser relationships and theme music as always by Tyler, Trapper and Harry, my boys. Appreciate the love you guys. See you back here soon. Until then, peace. And congrats to Jason, 400th episode today. Oh, is that right? Yes. I didn't know that. Thank you, Jason. He is the OG of this organization. He's the OG Coyote. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Namaste. I feel like Ted should say that. Namaste. Namaste, everyone. Namaste. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs>